This is W T M. Watch this movie. What? <laughs> How you doing? Oh, good for you. Oh, wait. Are you drinking up? First, you gotta do the trouble shuffle. Obviously, you're not a golfer. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. W G M. Watch this movie. Welcome back to WTM Watch This Movie. I am Eric Mulder. Some of us pump, and some of us slump. Joining me once again is Mr. Positivity, Wolfie T. You want to talk? We'll talk. I'm a sucker for good conversation. What's up? Just watching horror movies every chance I get. <laughs> what about you? Well, I, I just made an appearance on the Midnight Movie Cowboys. Uh, episode about the 2000 classic ready to rumble mm. starring wcw champion david arquette <laughs> when was he champion uh right after the movie came out oh really <laughs> <laughs> uh, i suppose he would have to be because wcw <laughs> collapsed what, just a few years after the movie right uh less than a year less than a year <laughs> All right. So, yeah, of course, you were talking about wrestling. Uh, it was a great episode. Everyone should check it out. Uh, Midnight Movie Cowboys. Uh, we are in the throes of the horror extravaganza. Uh, we're going to be talking some Fulci today. And then we'll be getting into kind of a horror bonus episode with Friday the 13th Part 2 with Stu from the Midnight Movie Cowboys. Since that doesn't follow our our focus for the, for the fall. Uh, it's not a American film made overseas. But uh, after that, hopefully we're doing pieces with the entire Midnight Movie Cowboys. And then uh, we'll get to some more films after that. We'll probably do a recently seen. So uh, a lot on our plate over the next few weeks. Today we're talking about the New York Ripper, uh, directed by Lucio Fulci. And with us, we have a, uh, when we had John Grace on the show to talk about martial arts films. And one in the Out for Justice episode, he I call him a martial arts uh, expert. He likes to, he prefers to be called a martial arts historian. So we have with us today, Ian Urza. Hey, I don't know about you guys, but me, I'm headed up to here. Who is, I would say, a, a Italian film expert, but is that what you would describe yourself or a, or a historian? enthusiast uh i'd say expert is uh what i would kind of prefer actually okay that's because that's because you're from the east coast right you have that <laughs> east coast elitist mindset i don't know if it's <laughs> yeah i don't know if it's that i think it's more just historian um to me makes it sound like the information is is harder to find or, or or you have to study it to know it where the information is a little more readily available uh, this isn't like the 1990s, where some of this information probably wasn't as available. So I think the expert term might be a little what I prefer because of that. I don't know. Just my just my thoughts on what it could be, uh, our opinion. But yeah. Straight to the most knowledgeable person I, I knew well, regarding, regarding, <laughs> regarding <laughs> Italian cinema. So you're the first person who popped into my head. So thanks for joining us. I have lots of questions to get to. And I understand that New York Ripper is your favorite giallo. 
Yeah, it is because it's it's kind of my favorite Giallo and Slasher because this definitely has some slasher aspects to it. Uh, I think in the early 1980s, the Italian uh, Giallo genre kind of changed. I think they it was either just a changing tide of the time in general or it was slasher influence where the films became a little bit more like slashers. Uh, but as long as it has a an investigation narrative to it, it's still it's still a Giallo movie to me. Like a Giallo, it basically has to have an investigation murder mystery aspect in, in it somewhere in order to be a Giallo. And it doesn't necessarily have to be Italian, although it's almost like it's almost like whiskey, right? Like like or whiskey or, or bourbon, like bourbon's only from Kentucky, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I feel about the Giallo, where it kind of has to be Italian, but it kind of doesn't like pieces for example is a giallo it just happens to be spanish but it is it still is a giallo i mean sure it deals with a investigation narrative you got a black glove killer and everything it just it just isn't italian and some people may not consider that a giallo if they're a purist although i'm not really like that i mean there are there are movies that i would classify as american giallos as well uh dressed to kill being one mm-hmm. of them sure. uh, but yeah now i heard you on a recent episode of land of the creeps you and greg amortis were talking uh some Jalo films, your double double episodes, and you were talking about uh, Delirium from '87. Now, uh, Greg mentioned that it's kind of more of a, a modern Jalo. I was wondering, what would you consider like a classic? What would you consider a modern? Is there like a cutoff in terms of like the year, like pre 1980 well, or, or post 1980s modern? I mean, Jalo movies are still kind of being made. I mean, for all for all intents and purposes like real genre filmmaking in Italy is kind of, I, I wouldn't say dead, but it's, it's pretty much that way. Like all, a lot of uh, Italian drama, like there are, there are dramas and comedies in Italy now, and that's basically it. You might have someone come along making a thriller every once in a while and there. And to me, like, for example, uh, Dario Argento just did dark glasses like last year, and that would be still be considered a giallo. Um, a, a, they would call that almost a neo giallo is what they try to call those movies the ones that are sort of made more uh, nowadays and then uh greg i don't I, I think greg just sort of invented that term and that's uh, the modern giallo term and that's totally fine i mean i think in a way what he might be talking about what i would say is that at a certain point in the mid 80s the giallo genre started to change i mean the new york ripper and tenebrae by dario argento were kind of the fringe of that where the giallo movies kind of became a little bit more like slashers but then you had ones in the late 80s where they just some of them got rid of the whodunit aspect entirely like uh the movie uh phantom of death which actually relates to the film we're talking about phantom of death was the original script for new york ripper that is a movie where you know who the killer is uh, you actually know who the killer is, and there are characters uh, it, within the movie that are trying to figure out who the killer is, but you're actually one step ahead of those characters in terms of you already know who the killer is and what they're doing. So I guess that could be considered a modern giallo, whereas the classic giallo were films from the sort of mid, uh, well, actually even early 60s to the, I'd say, mid 70s. The giallo genre is not one that's that's very particular. There are movies that are more psychological. Um, your movies like All the Colors of the Dark, which would be very comparable to something like Eyes Wide Shut. That's the type of movie we're talking about with okay. that. Then you have your more slasher-oriented ones, which Dario Argento sort of started. Like in 1970, Dario Argento makes Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and that, in a way, is basically the Halloween of the genre where it wasn't necessarily the first one, but it was the movie that really popularized it. Whereas a movie like Blood and Black Lace by Mario Bava in 1964 would be considered almost the Black Christmas of the genre or 
uh, even the movie he made a, a year before that, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, would almost be considered the psycho of the genre, where it was like the very first one to do that, so to speak. Uh, he did Bay of Blood in 1960, right? No, Bay of Blood is before that. You're think you might be thinking of Black Sun. Uh, Bay of Blood is after that. You might be thinking okay. of Black Sunday. Okay. Yeah, Bay of Blood was like 1971. That was a little bit later. Um, and, that's and that was huge... more of just a uh, more of a slasher, right? Yeah, and that and that's that's also where that movie and Torso were the two that sort of really were a huge influence on the slasher genre because both of those movies kind of diverged from the investigation narrative a little bit and they were mm -hmm. more about just a killer killing off people one by one in a very particular location they sort right. of eschewed the uh the investigation narrative even though there's still a mystery they eschewed that uh investigation narrative almost entirely in favor of stock and slash sequences all in one location which is what you think of the slasher genre as being and in those movies that some people don't use people don't usually catch on that the killer is around until later like i said because there's no investigation and that's what you think of as slasher movies is people getting killed off one by one in the location and they don't know what's happening until the very end basically right now brett uh why don't you tell Ian what you thought of the lead detective in this film? Mm. Oh, I, I thought he was a terrible detective. <laughs> oh, he is. He's horrible. <laughs> he's, he's he's terrible. No, no, no. What's funny is I was going to tell you guys this too. Is you you could have almost named this 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 faux American horror month like terrible cops month because I don't know if you've seen pieces yet. Have you guys watched pieces yeah, I, yet? I've seen pieces. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The detective in pieces is worse than the detective in this movie. He's even lazier. I mean, and and the two the two cops in uh, in stage fright are awful as well. The one one of them yeah. played by the director actually, McKelly Suave, making a nice yep. cameo. But uh, okay, yeah, McKelly, like, that was a question about McKelly Suave. Yeah. Okay. Was that was that one of your questions actually? It was. Yeah. That? From stage yeah. fright. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And and at least I mean, at least the detective in this movie kind of like, he, you know, he get, he gets his nice action moment at the end. But yeah, he's he's horrible. And like he never even questions like he's having all these, you know, talks with the psychologist and the detectives like, I don't care why this person did what they did. This guy's the killer. And then it's like the coroner's like, oh, he died eight days ago. He can't be the killer. And it's yeah. like, well shit all right all right well, i'm actually sorry am i supposed to swear on this show i didn't know yeah you can swear. Fine. I, that's fine okay uh but yeah the the detective in this is lazy and he's like he acts more morally superior in different ways which is one of the one of the uh themes of this film by the way is sort of the the whole narrative around uh uh sexuality and that kind of stuff which is something i plan to talk about but the cop the cop uh, talks to that one guy who's, you know, basically a cuckold with his with his wife, mm -hmm. right? The yeah, uh, yep. the the Doctor Lodge character, and he says to him, "Your wife was free to live and she was free to die." And then I'm thinking to myself, "Well, you're the guy who's who's a cop and you're off banging a prostitute in the meantime. <laughs> like you're one to talk, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's pretty par for the course, then. Shitty detectives across the the job. Uh, no. Actually, that no, I would say no. Um, okay. For the most part, the detectives are pretty competent, but there are some where they're very much in the background, letting the investigator do their thing. And sometimes, like Dario Argento, kind of popularized a movie where the investigator was just an ordinary citizen rather than a cop. Whereas in a lot of movies, I'd say before his, but even after his, the investigator isn't always is sometimes a cop, although. You also had your female fronted giallo movies and your male fronted giallo movies. Dario Argento kind of started the trend of male oriented ones where the ones before his and 
the films that uh, Sergio Martino did, for example, were more about females as the protagonists. And they're sort of the the uh, let's say the prototype for the uh, the final girls that would come in slasher movies, although they're kind of different because the Giallo movies would usually let women express their sexuality and and be and it would be okay like they wouldn't die because of that where slasher movies basically say oh the woman has to be pure or a virgin or else they're going to die so that's that's one ways the giallos especially the female fronted ones actually uh divert from the slasher movie a little bit okay lots to get to i still have a <laughs> couple of questions oh yeah um put we'll put a pin in the you mentioned uh we talked about a little bit about the screenplay for uh, New York Ripper, but you mentioned Argento, and I just this is a question left over from Stage Fright. So in that episode, we talked about uh, Zolly Becker watching a, a film called Trauma from Argento from I believe '93. Yep. It's not one of his better films. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, <laughs> um, that was filmed here in the Twin Cities, and I actually got it wrong. I listening back, I, I said Stone Arch Bridge that I saw in the clip I saw from the film. It's actually the the Hennepin Avenue bridge. But um, I was wondering, is that a, a Jalo film? And uh, I guess my second question was, is it any good? But <laughs> I think that you already answered that. Well, no, it's not. I would, I would probably give it like a four out of 10. There are people that like it a little bit more than I do. It's, it's certainly, it's up there among my least favorite films of his. I mean, there are films of his that are worse. Some of the ones he made in the two thousands. Um, some people would have trauma a little bit higher than I would, but it's definitely not one of his uh, higher rated films. Um, okay. And yeah, it is a giallo uh, for sure. Oh, it is? Okay. It does have some good people in it. The lead actor uh, sucks. Uh, and that was one of the problems with Dario Argento's films as he, uh, a little later in his career, like the lead actor, I think was like the son of like a TV producer who was just trying to act a little bit, but you do have Piper Laurie in it playing a, a really good role. Brad Dorif has a really small role in it. Um, Tom Savini did the mm. effects for it, but he okay. didn't actually get much work because the I think Dario Argento was trying to make the film less bloody and gory for whatever reason. And the the instrument of death in that is like this weird machine that decapitates people. And that sounds good, but it doesn't look very good. And also it adds no variety to the film. People are just getting killed in the same way over and over again, which isn't actually sure. as exciting as you might think. Like, I remember uh, there's there's a slasher movie called The Nail Gun Massacre. Do you think, oh, that's actually kind of cool. The killer's using a nail gun. But when you watch it, it's like, well, it's actually not that exciting because the killer's just <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> Was that before or after Lethal Weapon? <laughs> uh, uh, before. It's, it's it's also a terrible movie. Yeah, Lethal Weapon with, uh, oh, uh, Jack McGee with the nail gun. Yeah. They'd explain what a nail two. gun was. Nailed them both. <laughs> it's so new. Yeah. Maybe it was a ripping off uh, toolbox murders, maybe. Did they use a nail gun in there. I'm not sure. I don't, I actually have never seen that movie. So okay. uh, I can't speak on that. I haven't seen the Toby Hooper remake either, which is the only movie that Sherry Moon Zombie has ever done without Rob Zombie. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did he let that happen? Was that before they got married? <laughs> uh, it would have been slightly after. I mean, that movie was, I think, 2004. It's directed by Toby Hooper, actually. That's right. I forget it was that recent. I mean, still 19 years ago, but still feels yeah. recent. I guess for him, for Toby Hooper, he would, uh, you know, lend out his wife for a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so getting back to the topic at hand... The screenplay was basically rewritten, and Sarchetti, is that the, the screenwriter's name? 
Sacchetti, I think. Yeah. Sacchetti. Um, okay. I'm not sure if it's Sacchetti or Sacchetti. I've always said it as Sacchetti, but okay. Well, I saw some comments that he made talking about how much of a, a misogynist Fulci is, and he's a sadist towards women and all this and that. And I was kind of wondering, is that just kind of his uh, agreed upon reputation? Is this where it started? Is that what a lot of people think of him or it seems to be, but I don't know. Like, it's funny. I, I, I'm i wondering where that, what, when that interview was made, because the interview I saw in the blue underground, I don't remember him saying that stuff about Fulci. He had said, I think he had said Fulci was a kind guy, but he, he masked that kindness with, with sort of a bad temper because he was always treated badly by other people. Mm. Therefore that's sometimes how he treated others. For the most part, women have said that they, like uh, Daniela Doria, who's in this movie, she is the victim who you wouldn't forget it. She gets her nipples sliced off and her eyes <laughs> sliced apart by a razor. She worked with them four times. She had no problems working with them. Uh, Zora Karova, who plays the uh, woman at the live sex show, uh, she had no problem working with him. She did say he had one, I think when they were making Touch of Death, she did say he had one day where his temper was really bad but other than that he was fine like they said his temper would usually flare more to the actresses but for the most part he just valued professionalism i think was the thing he wanted people to know their lines wanted people to do what they were supposed to do come in on time and uh, i i think that was really it i've never because the misogynist label i think more i don't know if it comes from more how he treated women in his films or how he treated them off screen it's probably a little bit of both but even within this film you watch it and it's not it, i think people are reading it wrong if they say it's a misogynistic film i mean we can get to more of that mm -hmm. uh later or now if you want to talk about it but that's that's basically all all i have i mean i don't i haven't heard any really terrible stories about him you know besides just occasional temper flare-ups that he would have on sets sometimes sure he is italian so i mean that's par for the course <laughs> these films i know were popular at the time i know new york ripper was a commercial success in italy uh so these films are they were well liked was there a lot of criticism back in the day when you know these were coming out every other week were, were there people like Siskel and Ebert saying, oh, it's too much violence against women on screen. I can't take it anymore. I can't speak as much for the Italian critics. I think they I don't think they like this film either. Um, this film was definitely uh, uh, blasted in the United Kingdom. Uh, it still can't be seen uncut to this day in the United Kingdom. Uh, because okay. of its its reputation the italian critics i can't i can't necessarily speak as well for because that information's not exactly that easy to come by although and i think you were right i think this i think this film and some of fulgi's films were a moderate success and i think he made them with less of a budget than argento did therefore they probably turned an okay profit i think uh in the commentary troy howarth was talking about how this film was like ranked number 87 of that mm -hmm. year like a lot of his movies would crack the top 100 in terms of box office mm -hmm. uh back then which is which is decent um it wasn't nearly as high as uh, the movies argento was making but it was still he still did okay even though he ended up not having a lot of money towards the end of his life yeah i think i, I saw on wikipedia somewhere made over a billion lira but i don't you know 
I have no well, yeah, that, that conversion for rates, that conversion <laughs> rates awful. Um, sure. It's actually really bad. Um, there's actually a good, there's a good example of that in uh, a movie called almost human with uh, Henry Silva. Henry Silva talks about, uh, you know, someone, uh, Thomas Millian in that movie kills a guy at a cigarette dispensary. He kills a cop at a cigarette dispenser to get money. And Henry Silva's like, you killed that man for 600 lira. And that's like, that could literally be like, six cents for for all i know like it's 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 a very it is a very very bad conversion right it's like that that seinfeld where the japanese tourists were uh, hanging out with kramer he's like they got a million yen yeah that's not much <laughs> the simpsons episode we're down to our last million yen <laughs> oh okay well um let's see if i had any more questions before we uh, get into it. Our focus for this horror extravaganza is full American horror. So when I first saw the New York Ripper, it was probably about eight years ago. I remember, you know, really liking it and remember the Italian flavor and everything. And when we were looking up films to do for this, I went to New York Ripper and I went to filming locations in IMDb and like the first two listed were Italy. And then I think I say, you know, Times Square, I'd only seen it once, so I figured, oh, this must be all B-roll. This is all second unit footage. But, uh, you know, you look at the back of the Blue Underground Blu-ray, shot on location in New York with just some of the interiors uh, filmed in Italy. Uh, how much do you think was really filmed in Italy? Uh, well, some of the interiors, I'm sure, were. Um, it was. I know the interiors were filmed at DePala Studios, which is where... Um, which is where a lot of the big genre films were shot uh, there. I mean, there's there's an endless list of genre films that would have been shot there. Definitely some Fulci worked on, uh, some Ruggiero Diodato made right at this time. So a lot of the interiors, like I'm sure this scene, like remember the there's like that crane shot that goes up the house, the doctor's house. Then you see the inside, and I'm sure the inside is not that particular building they were filming from the outside. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of it was <laughs> filmed on location. Uh, Troy Howard said in his commentary that, it did four weeks of location shooting uh, in New York. And then I think another two for interiors at the palace studios. Okay. Cause I think I, I read somewhere it was eight weeks of shooting, but yeah. Do you think the, the live sex show was probably in Italy? Um, I think the, the interior of it was, they definitely filmed the, the Times square stuff was definitely filmed in Times square. I'm sure the mm -hmm. interior of that scene may have been, although James Sampson is in that scene, and I think he's a New York-based actor, but I'm not sure. It could have been, it could have gone either way. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how that would have gone. I do know Zora Karova was brought in because they liked the way she looked. They thought that she would fit the scene well, and she had no idea that that's all she had to do for the scene, which was really funny. She said, she said she did it as a favor to Fulci because they were friends, and mm -hmm. I mean that that would be kind of weird to just film that. I mean, she obviously gets a death scene right after that, but still, for that to be the first thing you film, I could see how that would be a little uh, challenging. Yeah, I saw that interview on the on the Blu-ray, and uh, she didn't have any hard feelings about it, but you could tell it wasn't her favorite scene to do. But um, I was trying to figure it out because she was talking about doing the scene with uh, I'm not sure of the actor's name that she was having sex with. But, you know, she talked about she never saw him again after that. Wasn't sure if he did movies, but she said something along the lines of, you know, we wanted to really do it right. Were they actually having sex? Um, yeah, from what I I'm not entirely sure. They said that they were trying to film it at a lot of different angles. Um 
she also had said that the scene was more awkward because he was gay. Um, yeah, I don't remember the guy's. <laughs> I, I don't remember the guy's name, but Troy Howard talked about him in the commentary. He said that he was actually like a a Swiss uh, model of sorts, and he was actually like the first. Uh, I think he was the first black model to be on like GQ magazine there or something. Oh, Earth, Earth Althaus. Althaus. Yes, that's right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> she said she figured he was gay but you know wasn't entirely sure but yeah that would that would have made it awkward and um i guess harder to do if they were actually doing it i'm not sure but talk about no hard feelings oh wait <laughs> <laughs> yeah that might lead to some context as to why as soon as she gets off stage the other actress goes how'd it go she goes eh. <laughs> yeah <laughs> seemed like she was having fun on stage but she was really well, active, uh, really well, active. Uh, Howard Ross was apparently having a lot of fun watching her. Um, <laughs> that that was in his interview. He said he was getting really turned on watching her. And Fulci actually told him, <laughs> Fulci actually said that to Howard to stop getting so turned on while watching her. <laughs> so that was funny. <laughs> Howard Ross playing Mickey Scalenda. His real name is Renato Rossini. But, yeah. Okay. Do you think he was uh, visibly aroused? Um. Fulci saw it maybe out of his I mean, probably if yeah I mean Fulci I don't know I don't know if I don't know if it was that or just the way he saw the the exact way he was looking at or when he was filming or something uh for <laughs> you know I don't know or he brought his own tape recorder from home and he's like hey there's only supposed to be one tape recorder in this scene <laughs> I think I got all the questions I wanted to out of the way so we can kind of get into the the details Okay, from 1982, New York Ripper, directed, of course, by Lucio Fulci. And do you just want to read the uh, <laughs> the uh, the writers' names and then the cast and their and their character names? Uh, let me see. I think I have it. Hold on, got to minimize this real quick. I have it up here somewhere. Also, just uh, to be clear, as is the the case in Stage Fright, everything is ADR, but it yep. seemed like in Stage Fright. At least most of the characters were speaking English. Uh, I think what they still. Li- I think they still are here. But yeah, I, most I of know. them are speaking English, right? I think so. Yeah. Do you think Fulci was speaking English? Uh very possible. He was doing it phonetically. I know he definitely couldn't speak English very well, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. Uh, so just you said uh, the the directors, the cat, uh, the the directors, writers, and cast. You said yeah. Uh, so directed by Lucio Fulci, written by Gianfranco Clarici, Vincenzo Menino, Lucio Fulci, and Dar- Dardano Sacchetti. Um, cast Jack Headley as Lieutenant Fred Williams, Almonte Susca as Faye Majors, Howard Ross, also known as Renato, uh, Renato Rossini, as Mickey Scalenda, Andrea Occhipinti as Peter Bunch, Alexandra Deli Colli as Jane Lodge. Paolo Malco as Dr. Paul Davis, Cinzia DePonte as Rosie, who is the first victim, uh, Cosimo Signori as Dr. Lodge, Daniela Doria as Kitty, and that will probably do it for the main cast. Okay. Synopsis is, a burned-out New York police detective teams up with a college psychoanalyst to track down a vicious serial killer randomly stalking and killing various young women around the city. So it starts with a man playing with his dog by the Brooklyn Bridge, right? He's playing fetch with him, and the dog comes back with a hand. He throws the ball in a bush. Like, what <laughs> yeah. kind of idiot or you know, <laughs> asshole throws the ball in the bush for his dog to go get? 
Uh, he was just, he didn't know all the strength he had, you know, it was <laughs> simple mistake. Here's a fun fact. Well, actually what's interesting about that scene is the, uh, the actor, the, the actor is a guy named Sal Carollo. He was a local uh, New York actor. And one of the reasons I know that is because he also appears in uh, Bill Lustig's Vigilante as a gas station attendant. Okay. And also the scene, I think at least, at least Troy Howarth brought this up in his commentary. I didn't think of this right away. Might actually be a tribute to Yojimbo because there's a scene in that movie with the dog carrying the severed hand. Right. Kira Kurosawa's film. Right. And they do this, they play this exact, they do this scene um, in the movie, the editor, which is sort of a tribute to Giallo. I can't remember. uh, I think it's Astron six is that studio who makes those films, but it was kind of a, a parody of giallo films made not too long ago sometime within the past five or ten years i think they they sort of mm. rehearsed this scene okay uh my next question is so as soon as they see the hand or as soon as the guy sees the hand uh basically the opening credits start and the score comes on so why does this movie sound like a late 70s cop show yeah, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure um, why that is. Francesco Damasi is actually a very good composer, and I like the score for this film. Now, actually, I would have to ask John Grace about this, but I do remember him saying in one of the MMC shows that this was actually like the this was actually like the soundtrack to a softcore film slowed down. I've I've heard him say okay. that before, so I would have to ask John to verify that because uh, I'm not sure if it's all Francesco Damasi's original work or not. Um, but yeah, it definitely has that vibe to it. Although it's not that uncommon among Italian films for them to sound like this. This was one of the few times uh, around that time where Fulci didn't work with his usual composer, which was Fabio Fritzi. And it kind of sounds a little bit like a Fritzi score, but not entirely. It's a little bit more, it has more of a jazzy sound to it, like the like the saxophones and some of the other stuff in it, like some of the, the brassy instruments uh, to go with all the synth uh, stuff. Okay, but yeah, it was just yeah, I I like the score too, but it it didn't it didn't seem like it fit to me. What about you, Brett? I I liked it. I yeah. yeah. I don't know if I would have picked it up as a softcore uh, soundtrack, but yeah, that might even be funnier to me. <laughs> well, it, it I mean, at least from what I mean, at least to me as I'm listening, I'm like, it does sound like it's a little bit slowed down. And at some parts, so that could be correct. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised, but yeah, I I, I like uh, like you said, this is similar to a lot of other like movies like this with the soundtrack, and I I do like that really synthy soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, I do like synth, especially in eighties, which this is, and also, you know, if it if if it sounds to me like a late seventies cop show, well, it's not that far off in that this is a detective story with a, a cop is basically the main character detective williams i mean we do have a final girl but we're not introduced to her until i don't know how long into the film probably close to a half hour yeah it's a few minutes it's yeah because there's all these other scenes before that the first time you see her is in the, is on the train so yeah there's a couple there's a lot of swerves in this movie like there, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of like misdirection uh, as far as victims and killers and final girls and and all that stuff like they they really try to throw a lot of curveballs at you well it you, it might be tough to pick up the narrative or the multiple narratives 
uh, the first time you watch it, but that's also kind of the, that's almost par for the course for the genre in general as well. And they don't always do like a whole lot of character introductions or exposition as well. Like they don't, they don't always say, Oh, this is this character's name and, and, and everything like that. They, they kind of just go with the flow with a lot of these films. Yeah. I did find parts of it to be a little hard to follow in terms of how they, how they would make that leap. Like for example, the uh, police chief, like they're like, Oh, it's, it's Scalenda. I don't know how they figured Scalenda was the, well, yeah, had well, uh, two fingers missing. Yeah, so but I, how did he out. how did he become aware of Scalenda? The uh, well, so I think didn't didn't um, didn't Faye say that she saw him on the train at one point following her, and then right, yeah, and then and then um, she didn't see who the who the person was who stabbed her with a knife, slashed her at her with a knife, right. and then. Also, uh, even more to implicate him as a suspect is he was the last guy seen with uh, Jane when he has sex with her in that sort of uh, that sort of dive uh, hotel or whatever. But but my question really is, it's like, I I know there's all this evidence about, you know, a person without two fingers. Does he have a a book full of suspects that are missing two fingers? Like, I don't know how he just knows his name all of a sudden. That's what I was trying to figure out. Not important. They make it Scalenda. I'm like, I, how do you know his yeah, name? That I'm not quite <laughs> sure about. I mean, they they end up going to investigate at his house or whatever. Yeah, I'm not not sure where the name comes from. So, somebody, um, I don't know. Somebody tipped him off because definitely Fred Williams didn't figure it out himself. <laughs> no, no, hell no. He he can't figure anything out. Doctor Davis is actually a better detective than he is. Although we're, we're led to believe that uh, the true killer was using Scalenda to find his prey, correct? Yeah, and also it, that could have been part of it because yeah, cuz they had that phone call and it's it's heavily implied that he, he's calling um that he's calling the killer. Um yeah, yeah. and the killer the killer uh, further implicates him to take the the scent off himself if there was anything on him there really wasn't. Yeah, so maybe uh maybe Peter slipped the name to the cops possibly. Yeah. I would say that could have happened because I, I, I'm trying to remember if there was anything, why they know exactly know his name. And yeah, I can't think of it other than that. It just seems like there were certain little things like that where I was thinking, well, how did they, how did they figure this out or how did they make this leap? I mean, they obviously know, know who he is, who he is when they, once they go to investigate his, his, uh, his sort of ran down apartment with all the, the right. drugs and the magazines and all the yeah. sex toys and stuff. <laughs> they, yeah. they might've, they might've had a record on him. I mean, he, he seems like the type of guy who probably was arrested before. Yeah, wasn't he a wasn't he a gigolo too? I think that's that was implied yeah. in the film at least. Going to the, going to the live sex shows, being a gigolo, having all the drugs and sex toys at his apartment. The cops did say he did have a, a rap sheet, and at least one of the charges was sexual assault. At least one of them. So, violent sexual offender in his past. So. Maybe they had it on file that he had missing two fingers or something, but it was definitely not uh, explicitly uh, explained. It was like that scene in Dr. Fibes where they're trying to narrow down what uh, what uh, case they all worked on together. And he's got the pile of like 12, <laughs> 12 files and then like five. And then one is like, this is Galenda. He's the one <laughs> that fits all the, all the evidence. <laughs> 
They just, they just didn't put it in the movie. <laughs> yes, we 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 find out that the the hand belongs to a model, and the next scene is at the police station where Lieutenant Williams is talking to the landlady, very uh, chatty uh, landlady, likes to eavesdrop in all of her tenants. Mrs. Weisberger. <laughs> She was murdered, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> just just by looking at her, William's just like, you can tell his stomach is turning. It's just like, oh. <laughs> you know, Dallas, that TV show where the family has money coming out of its ears? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some of her lines are really fun. Because she's like trying to make conversation with her and he just wants nothing to do with it whatsoever. Like, I like I was... the part where she's about to leave and then she like turns back. He's like, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Her her last name was Weisberger. Yeah, and I was trying to figure out if that's like an actual Jewish name or just somebody's like, God, we gotta come up with a Jewish name for this landlord. What is that? <laughs> Weisberger. That's that's a good one. <laughs> it's two names in one. I don't think I've ever heard the name Weisberger, but it just seemed like they put two Jewish names together. <laughs> but she, of course, gives him the tip that the she would have phone calls with someone that sounds like a duck, which obviously right. comes back. <laughs> in the next scene uh pretty much uh so yeah the, next we get to uh, a woman on a bicycle and she gets distracted by thinking about boston and crashes into a, a car <laughs> this whole conversation is so funny and she's like i was thinking about boston i'm like uh okay um and yeah then, yeah what he says yeah i have that uh whole clip right here actually god damn it why can't you watch where you're going? Sorry, I was thinking of Boston. The bar only streaked, it'll rub off in a second. You women should stay home where you belong. You're a menace to the public. And you've got the brains of a chicken. And you're an asshole. Ciao. <laughs> well, yeah, I thought it was so random. Oh, sorry, I was thinking of Boston. <laughs> Yeah, and then it's uh, it's heavily. I think it's implied that the killer goes after her because of the way she's dressed. Um, I'm not that she's really scantily clad, but she's wearing, let's say, low cut stuff. I would say sure. Uh, and I because I think you see the car following her in the background at one point, and I think that's supposed to be the killer. Mm -hmm. um, but this starts how people talked about how this was a misogynist movie, yet this woman gets a a, a verbal misogynistic attack. So you kind of feel bad for her. And I don't necessarily think you you want her to die. You know, that's the thing about this sure. movie is all the victims are people to me that you don't really want to see die. I mean, some of them you don't necessarily know enough about. But at least with this one, it's established right away that she gets, you know, verbally attacked. And like, you don't I don't think you want to see anything bad happen to her because of that. So she's got the brains of a chicken, though. <laughs> <laughs> Those women are a real menace to society. <laughs> Well, also, she defaced the guy's windshield. She wrote shit on the windshield <laughs> with uh, with a lipstick. I think yeah. if if the Ripper would have let her, she probably would have finished it and said shithead or something on it. <laughs> yeah, she, that, the woman is actually uh, a woman named Cinzia Di Ponte, who was actually Miss Italy in 1979 and oh, wow. started doing movies after that. She is a looker. Yeah. She, uh, yes, uh, as you said, Brett, she has interrupted and her graffiti by the Ripper, and he rips her apart. We have a description of how she got ripped <laughs> apart. <laughs> uh, we do. Uh, that is our next clip. However, I just wanted to 
finish off that scene. Well, I, to me, it really, um, the, the sort of way she's attacked really parallels a scene. And I saw the devil. I don't know if you guys have seen that the Korean film. No, um, it's, it's on my list though. Yeah. I've, I've heard where, of it. Well, at the v- very beginning of that film, this isn't a spoiler because it happens at the very beginning. The, the killer traps a woman in her car because she's, she's right up against the gate and she can't get out of the door. And that reminds me of what happens here mm, where she's sure. right up against the door and can't get out of the car. But it's also a very, um, it's just a very brutal kill scene because of the the close-ups and the amount of slashes and stabs. And she talked about filming this, how every they used a retractable blade and everyone, for whatever reason, was afraid to film it. So it's actually Lucio Fulci's hands with the knife. Mm. Mm. And yeah, I kind of noticed something, uh, especially with at least this film. I don't know if it's true with other Jalos, but, you know, Psycho is praised for being on the forefront of the slasher genre and there's a lot of quick cutting, especially in the shower scene. And there is some quick cutting here, but there's a lot of drawn out, at least what seems to be, it maybe it only lasts two, three seconds, but it's the camera stays on the cutting and it really shows it graphically. Fulci was famous for not relieving tension in his films. He was kind of famous for that, for that element where he would keep the camera on everything and he didn't usually cut away very quickly he would let you see whatever violence he was doing. There's a very famous scene in city of the living dead, where he, he kills someone with a drill and it's like a slow thing where a guy is moving. He's moving this other guy toward the drill and you think it's going to cut away and it actually shows everything. And the same thing happens with zombie. If you guys have seen that or seen yeah, the, yeah. the infamous eye scene with the splinter where it, <laughs> it, it keeps, it, it keeps dragging it on until you think, Oh, they're not going to show it. They're going to cut away. And it's like, no, they don't, they keep it on. <laughs> so he's, he was famous for, for always doing that. It's like clockwork orange. He's going to force you to watch it. <laughs> yeah. Now, is he alone in that in, in the giallo uh, genre or other directors do that as well or was there more quick cutting well the giallo genre wasn't always um one for really elaborate kill sequences i think they were more focused at times on the mystery they started being more focused on the stock and slash sequences i think in the 80s like i said argento i, I think argento kind of got more elaborate with those sequences as he went along like in deep red his first three films, the Animal Trilogy films, not so much. He wasn't too brutal with some of the kills. They were really good set murder set pieces, but not necessarily the kills themselves. Deep Red, I think he got more involved. So I wouldn't say Fulci's alone in that, but this is probably one of the most brutal uh, uh, Giallo films in terms of the kills. There are there are some others that are, that are fairly violent, but they're not necessarily... Um, the, the kill scenes aren't quite as... Uh, as long or drawn out as, as some of these are, this probably would stand as, as the most violent in the kill scenes, I would say. Another thing I notice is along with these lingering camera shots, you have really impressive special effects with all the cutting, especially for the time. I mean, it's been 41 years since the film came out and they still hold up pretty well. And, you know, with a lot of effects, especially films of the time, they just have to be passable for just a passing glance of the camera. In this film, the camera lingers static or steady on on the cutting or the, uh, you know, the gouging, what have you. It's pretty impressive that uh, the effects hold up for the, I guess, the long takes. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because he worked in this. He did not work with his usual um, effects collaborator, who is Giannetto De Rossi. Now, the two he worked with did really good effects work. They also worked with Fulci on The Beyond and uh, some other movies as well. But his usual effects collaborator was Giannetto De Rossi, who I would say was a slightly even better effects artist than the two he had here. But these ones are are really good. All right, well, let's get to our next clip. This is the coroner discussing how this woman died. Barry. Barry. What? So what's the good news? He used a blade. He stuck it up her joy trail and slid her wide open. He could have done a slightly better job if he'd had more time. But overall, it was uh, good, efficient butchery. <coughs> Sex? Strange. No trace. <laughs> Any ideas? I've seen hundreds of girls in very bad shape, you know. Doctor Barry Jones. So special about it. Do you remember that that girl they found five or six weeks ago? That model. Ann Lynn. Same exact style. I bet my dentures she was she was done in by the same guy, a lefty, with a yen for slashing up young ladies. Another. Anyway, maybe I have something that might interest you. Huh? I found traces of another blood group mixed with hers. Probably our murderers. Dun, dun, dun. Her joy trail. Great shout out from from Barry to the killer. You know, did did a good job with the with the killing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I also um both both of these voice dubbers are people I, I enjoy quite a bit. Robert Spafford dubbing the coroner. He's a he's a he's a well-known voice voice dubber. And but uh, Ed Mannix dubbing Jack Headley is is huge. He was like one of the first uh, voice dubbers I actually I, I recognized um, in terms of because it was this this film was one of my first Italian genre films I watched. And then I heard his voice in so many more films and I eventually figured out who he was. So. Sure. Since then, I figured out who so many more were. And actually, um, if you want to you get ready to take some notes or something or remember this moment, he, he actually he dubs the uh, he dubbed Paul L. Smith in pieces who played the janitor in that movie. OK, so he, that's the same voice. Um, there might be one or two other voices in that. There's one. Uh, there's at least no, there's two others uh, in this movie that I'll point out that are also in pieces when I get when I get the chance. But that's okay. one of them. David Brandon in Stage Fright, did he uh, ADR himself? I think he did. I think he does in Stage Fright. Yes, not okay. in Delirium, but I think he does in Stage Fright. I think that is his voice, uh, specifically with him, just because it sounds a lot like a just a regular British voice. It doesn't sure. sound like a dub voice. Okay, because it seems like David Brandon's in quite a few Italian films for for being a, a British actor. Did he speak Italian? I'm not sure if he did, but uh, I mean, he he could have probably did. But oh, that happened with some people where they were just mainstays in Italian cinema, uh, even back then. I mean, that that happened with several American actors, too. Henry Silva was acting in Italian uh, Italian films from the you know late 60s all the way to the early 90s. So people some people just found work there and stuck with it. Another famous one is um, uh, what's his name? I'm trying to think of the. The, the the British actor he just died recently uh why am I not remembering his name yeah bon uh Dumbledore <laughs> I'm 
done today <laughs> no i i got it i'll i'll think of his name eventually but he was he played the uh the villain in in tenebrae and he's been in several other stuff and he was like a british mm-hmm. actor who wasn't getting much work in uh in, in some other stuff and he just went he went overseas to work in in italy i can't believe i'm not remembering his name right now but there's there's definitely others too who are who are like that that would just that would just go to italy and just kind of stuck around there um yeah yeah, he plays like the uh, the TV guy in Tenebrae. I should I should know this, but I don't. Oh, uh, now I got it. Now I got it. John Steiner. John Steiner was the guy okay. I'm thinking of. Um, interestingly enough, I was actually the one. I was actually the one who told Michael Berryman that he died because he worked with Michael Berryman in a movie called Cut and Run. Okay. And I was at the bar with Michael Berryman at a <laughs> con. Um, I'm sure he can hold his liquor. He's a big dude. And I asked him, yeah, and I asked him about John Steiner and he said, oh, John was always a professional to work with. And I told him that he had died recently. And Michael Berryman was like, oh, man, uh, that was it, it, both both years I've gone to Atlantic City for a con. I met someone at the bar going a day early. Uh, this time it was Michael Berryman. And last year it was Ginger Lynn. So <laughs> <laughs> just quickly. So you were recently at the uh, Connecticut con. Uh, what was yeah. it called? Connecticut Horror Fest. Okay. What were the prices like for autographs and pictures and combos and stuff? Um, so the I I don't think there was there was no one I met that was more expensive than sixty. Uh, Ken Forey was sixty for a combo. Lauren Lavera was sixty for a combo. Bill Mosley was sixty for a combo. I think they were probably would have just been forty for an autograph. Really? Okay. Um, maybe forty for a picture. Uh, and then Galen Ross, PJ Souls, and Scott Reiniger were all 40 for a combo. Okay, because we, we recently had Crypticon. I didn't go because I've been a few times and the, the guest list this year was not up to snuff. When it, when the top person is like D. Wallace and I mean I, I would like like to see D. Wallace, but like last year they had Felissa Rose, who I was gonna go see that and she canceled like a few weeks beforehand. So I said, Well, I'm not going now. And like other guys that I've been there a few times, I've seen them up before. Just the guest list was not up to snuff. They had half the people there were from Terrifier, Terrifier 2. And so I wasn't going to go for them, um, even though, you know, I don't mind the movie, but. Well, you, you got on Art the Clown's bad side uh, one time. <laughs> I did. I did. But like I there were several people that were, it was $100 for a combo um who was who would that have been um because uh, i've 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 paid 100 for some people i paid 100 for matthew lillard i paid 100 for tony yeah, it wasn't even anyone that big uh skeet all rich i paid 100 uh rose mcgowan i paid 100 those are the four people that i've done that for i i i'll never go above that amount though that's like that's like my absolute max and it has to be a person that i really want um because there are several there are some people that are 80 uh daniel harris has been 80 um Kane Hodder has been 80 when I met him. There's been a couple. There's been 170. Uh, the, the, uh, Gary Busey was 70 when I met him. I'm trying to think of Yeah. Most of the time, the price is 40 for like people who are more retro, like people who haven't done too many movies in a while. If they're retro and they're a little bit more well-known, like your Bill Mosley, your Ken Forey, or um, right. uh, William Forsythe, those are usually 60. Um, and then 80 will be someone who's kind of big, but ne- not necessarily in too many modern films, uh, like Daniel Harris and Kane Hodder, like I said, and then your, your a hundred is going to be people who are like a, a, 
somewhat big celebrity because they're just and they usually don't charge these prices themselves by the way it's it's actually the cons that are doing it because the con is a business first and foremost sure so i wonder if it's just the con charging them too much or like the split isn't what they want so they got to charge more like clint howard was there it would be nice to see him but like a lot of people it was just kind of like well yeah i it's like i'm paying 40 50 bucks for the ticket to get in and then i gotta pay what 40 40 to 60 for an autograph for them to sign my Blu-ray sign the Wraith on Blu-ray for Clint Howard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, I, uh, I don't mind the money as much just because this is usually what I do on most of my vacations anyway. Like I, when I became a manager at work, like a couple of years ago, I needed to claim vacation time in advance. And one of the things I thought of doing, well, I'll just go to more horror cons. So sure. it's one of the only things I usually do on my vacations as it is. So I don't really mind the money part as okay. much, but if it's, if it's more like, if it's more someone who's doing it uh, for fun, I could see why that would be a little bit more of an issue. Yeah. I'm trying to find that they had a price list for all of them. Yeah, some places do that, some don't. Monster Mania is notorious for never doing their price lists before uh, the show, which kind of bugs me. But Don't they know how poor we are in the Midwest? <laughs> well, you could be a diaper salesman in Duluth for all I care. Well, it seems like prices have doubled here since like 2019. Yeah, they they probably have because I remember I remember the first con I went to in 2018. They weren't that bad, and even well before that, I mean, you could kind of blame the popularity of The Walking Dead for that because they kind of changed the cons overnight into being way bigger than they were previously. Oh, really? I believe that would be one of the factors. Yes, okay. as well as COVID and inflation now, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a problem with everything. So, all right. Well, I'm not finding it right now. It's not a big deal, but. Yeah, I think some of the combos were like 80, but I was like, I'm not spending $80 for that. And in a picture, 2019 was the last time I went. And they had kind of a mini Twin Peaks reunion. And I got Cheryl Lee and Dana Ashbrook, I think, like an autograph and picture, like 40 bucks each. And like, I'm not spending over 40, 60 for an autograph and a, a photo. There's just no way. It's like William Forsyth was 30 or 40. Tom Atkins. Tom Atkins didn't even charge me for a picture. He was like, that was like 2014, 2015, but that was, yeah, it was like 20 bucks for his autograph. And then I was like, oh, okay, a picture. I was like, how much you want a picture? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. And then just took a picture with me. He was probably just happy somebody wanted to take a picture with him because that probably doesn't happen very often. That was kind of crazy because that was, <laughs> there was like nobody in line when I was getting. Uh, my autograph and whatnot. I was like, this is Tom Atkins here, everybody. Like, what's everyone doing? And like next to them was, uh, I forget the names, but uh, Lurch from the Adams Family, the the movies, I forget his name, and the Twin Peaks. Uh, Carol Strukin or something yeah, like that. Yeah, Carl Strukin, yeah. Like he was there, like nobody was going. I'm like, what is everyone doing here? Like they're all going over to, there was a Frog Brothers reunion that year. So it was Corey Feldman and, Jason, oh, was it Jameson Newlander? Is that his name? They're like the Frog Brothers on Lost Boys. It's like they had a, like an Aliens reunion. They had Lance uh, Hendricks with um, Michael Bean and some other people. And those even weren't like the biggest names of that year. And then you go from that to, you know, D. Wallace and Clint Howard and a bunch of people from Terrifier too. And it's not even Art the Clown. It's like, I'm not. Yeah, no. uh, actually, Lance Henriksen is one of the people I refused to get a combo from. I only got a picture from him because 
his he wasn't even doing a combo. He was doing 60 for a picture and an autograph. So it would have been 120 total. And I'm like, oh, really? yeah, I'll just get the picture. I'm passing on that. Yeah. So like I said, I I I don't I'm not going to spring for over that much, uh, especially like like I, I like Lance Hendrickson a lot, but he's not like in my top 10 favorite actors or anything. Um, So, you know, it's just one of those things like there's very there, there are probably are no people that I'd spring more than 100 bucks for really. Sure. Yeah, Lance Hendrickson. I mean, you. I mean, it was nice when I uh, met him, but yeah, I, I it was not oh, that expensive nice when um when I was there. It was not 120. <laughs> I would not pay that either. I've never had any like bad experiences meeting people at cons except for one person. I had the, not a very good interaction with one particular person, but yeah. Name names. <laughs> okay, I can I can give I, I'll tell you. Uh, it, it would have been Alex Vincent, uh, the guy from okay. who played Andy oh, in yeah. the Chucky sure. series. Yep. He was here he just, a couple years ago. He he wasn't. He, it was nice enough. He was just awkward to talk to. He was giving me like one word answers the whole time. There was no one in his line, and he, I just don't think seemed like he was just not interested, <laughs> basically, in talking really at all. Um, but he's also he's uh, he he is dry, and he's also uh, he you know he has like a dry sense of humor, and he's. He's stoned like a hundred percent of the time, like you can tell. <laughs> so, yeah. Was, was that before the Chucky uh, TV series? It would have been right after season one, actually, okay. when I met him last year. So he would have, he would have been back yeah. in the limelight then. It's not like he was like doing it after like twenty years of nothing. Yeah, you'd think he'd be a little more affable. <laughs> it's like I got work. People want to see me. <laughs> I had a similar experience with Zach Galligan. Maybe for the reasons you're talking about, Wolfie. I've heard that before, actually, that Zach Galligan's not particularly great uh, to talk to. I've heard that from a couple other people. But... Well, I mean, the, the deal was, so I had him autograph my Gremlins Blu-ray. And he did. He was perfectly fine, nice. But he was very irritated because apparently, I think I was there on Saturday. And somehow he must have ran out of all of his 8x10s and all of his pictures. Because he had put in an order for more pictures, so well, that's had... not that's that's not his, that's that's not actually on him. That actually is that that is actually a reason to be not quite happy. I would kind of agree with him with that, but then again, I don't know what his response yeah. was to you. So. so I mean, he wasn't completely out, but he but the thing was, he was he had must have put in an order locally. So he had sent somebody from Crypticon or whoever to go get pictures. And they were there telling him how much they were per piece. And he was like, this is ridiculous. I think there was something like five bucks a piece or something. And he was like, oh, God, like he was just he, he was nice to me, but it was very uh, he was very irritated and um, not having a good time. And it was just all t- I mean, he was trying to, you know, it's like I got customers here. Like he was trying to serve me, but he was distracted. And like Brett said, you know, Zach Galligan, he hasn't done anything since. So it's 1990. Gremlins. I really like. I really liked him in Hatchet Three. When he when he was in Hatchet Three, he's good in that movie as a. I've only seen Hatchet One, so I did like it, but I haven't seen the sequels. Yeah, same for me. All right. Well, where were we? The uh, the coroner. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. We well, we just played the clip. Uh, They found some other blood, probably from the killer. Although, do they go anywhere with that? I never heard a line like, "Hey, the killer is type A B." Yeah, well, I actually just remembered, though, too. He says something about the killer being a lefty, which you would be able to discern probably from the wounds or whatever. And I think they I think Scalenda 
his hands are severed on that other on that other hand so it right makes sense side, that he was yeah. a lefty yep. too because yep. you can see you can see his hands yeah at one point when he's with the uh, what's her name? Uh, Alexandra Deli Colley, Jane. Right. Uh, so you can, so that would also be one reason why he would have been a suspect. And they announced that obviously on the radio. And mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I, so I forgot to, at the, I, I just remembered too, at the very, very beginning, um, the, the character Sal Carolla plays the dog owner. He's dubbed by a guy named Gene Luoto. And Gene Luoto is actually doing double, uh, double, uh, <laughs> dubbing duties in this movie because uh, he also dubs like the newspaper stand guy when uh, Dr. Davis goes to get a, a Blue Boy magazine. <laughs> get his Blue Boy. <laughs> Blue Boy, Blue Boy yeah. in a paper. <laughs> yep. It was funny, like watching that scene, but then I was like, oh, yeah, of course they did can't be walking around with honcho you know like i'm gonna bring my honcho home and read it you gotta get a paper to put it in between you know that was a good red herring scene because as soon as i saw that i'm like it was davis, I knew it was davis <laughs> well yeah and that time. that could have been but also it's also like this movie is really about i said this i think in one of my reviews i i, I know i wrote about this on my blog at one point but i talked about how this film shows how everyone has like a sort of uh a, a hidden uh sexuality whether they like to admit it in public or not and that's kind of one example is like almost everyone has expresses their sexuality in this way in some way or another and you see it with him when he buys that magazine and a lot of people and, and, and a lot of people in this movie the ones that get killed are the ones that are expl- are expressing it more publicly which is mm-hmm. I something i found interesting and that certainly had to do with Sacchetti talked about how that was a thing with within Italian films in general, where the, it was a it was a thing with the Catholic uh, the Moors of the Catholic Church, so to speak, was the women who were expressing that more uh, had to die, and that was also that was also in a way their form of censorship too. They had the the Italians. I don't really care too much about the content of the film or. They cared about the content, but not necessarily the way it looked like that. Here we care about how violent and how sexual things are. I don't think they cared about that. He had talked about how the killer needs a reason to be killing. He can't just be going around killing people at random. So that's why in these films, the killer needed a reason. And most of the time they always died or were punished for their actions, which is why you never see sequels to any Giallo movies. Was or has the the Vatican ever been influential in what comes out of Italian cinema? They come out against Jalo films or other films in the past. Uh, I'm not too sure if I can answer that question, like in terms of their opinion on it. But I do know that when Fulci made Don't Torture a Duckling, well, I don't want to exactly say why, because I would be spoiling the film. But that movie did not get a good reaction from the Catholic Church. Uh, neither did neither did a movie. I don't know if this was just. I think this may have been just as much a socio-cultural reaction as it was a Catholic church. He made a movie about a politician who basically sexually harasses uh, women. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called. The erotic, the eroticist. Um, He made like an Italian sex comedy and that also got a very negative reaction for what it was. So I do think it was, it was more about what the movie was about. Like if it made a priest look bad or, if it made the Catholic church look, look bad, then people would normally take offense to it. Even if they weren't necessarily like, um, they weren't necessarily going to ban the film or say you had to take this stuff out of it. Um, there are examples though. There's a movie called who saw, uh, who saw her die, which is a giallo starring George Lazenby actually. Mm, And, um, 
and that movie, there's a line at the end. Uh, I might kind of have to spoil this a little bit, but basically there's a line at the end where someone says, hey, this guy wasn't a priest at all. He was actually a priest in disguise. And so that was a way of saying, oh, the priest wasn't a bad guy this whole time. You know, so they sure. they kind of sometimes had to do little things like that for their for their censorship within content. Although there are there are some examples, though, like Fulci filmed a scene in Lizard in a Woman's Skin uh, where he killed a bunch of dogs and they actually thought it was real. And so he had to go to court for that and prove how he did it. <laughs> and the most the most notorious example of that, of course, is Cannibal Holocaust, yep. where they uh Ruggiero <laughs> Diodato got accused of actually killing that woman on the spike and killing his own cast members mm -hmm. and he had wanted them to go into hiding for a while to uh sort of promote the facade but then he ended up having to call them all in and let you know let everyone know that they were still alive because he actually got accused of making a snuff film which is actually ridiculous I mean the film looks real but it, come on like you can tell that it's a film when you watch it like give me a break I mean, I remember him, you know, having to go to trial to defend himself for that. But where was the trial in Italy or was it somewhere else? I think it was. I think okay. it was in Italy. I mean, in the U.S., nobody gives a shit these days what the Catholic League has to say. But back in the day, the Catholic League used to have quite a sway over uh, box office. Nowadays, you know? they just do everything to go against them. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah no, back in the day. I mean, it had it had a holding on, on things that more than it, it does now for sure. Uh, all right. Uh, I think we're up to the professor meeting the professor, Dr. Davis. So we were talking last week, uh, Brett, <laughs> college professors, they don't give a shit if you call them doctor, but maybe on the <laughs> East coast, but, uh, yeah, that's a free, he greets him with doctor in this one. He's first like, give me a minute, because he's playing chess with himself. With the, I've never seen that type of chess game before. I really like this character, and I like, I like how like you know they he introduces himself and his banter with uh with uh Detective Williams because he has you know he's like my problem is I want to talk to Doctor Davis. That's that's Ed Manix's <laughs> dubbing voice, and then he's like, well that problem you've solved. <laughs> so he has like a lot of sarcasm to him, and he right. has that moment where he says, hey, if I'm going to help you on this case, I need to get paid more. And then Williams is like, I'm sure that the the school will be happy to reimburse you. And and he's like, I only know what I make in my own paycheck. You know, he's like, because he asks him, he's like, what what is a genius's time worth? And he's like, I don't know. I only know what I make in my own paycheck. So they they have a fun. They have a fun sort of uh, a banter between them. And then Frank von Kugelin is actually another really good dubbing artist, uh, dubbing uh, Paolo Malco's Dr. Davis. And if you ever watch uh, House by the Cemetery, he's also dubbing Paolo Malco in that film. So you get the same same English dubbing voice in both films. Hmm. Williams just should have bought him a subscription to Blue Boy. That would have taken <laughs> care of him. Yeah. Save all the hassle of having to go out and buy a paper and a blue boy. W Williams would have judged him for that also, because you obviously see at some point in the film, Williams has no problem judging people on yeah. stuff like that. Right. But Also, yeah, I'm not surprised that Williams says he doesn't know something. <laughs> 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 we'll get more. Uh, we'll talk about it a little more when they get into, uh, um, I'm sorry, brain fart on his name. The, uh, the red herring with the missing two fingers, Mickey Mickey Scalenda Scalenda. When they're in yeah. his apartment and they see all the uh, accoutrement, if you will. Uh, where do we get to now? Okay, so okay, so we're he meets the professor. He agrees to help. I think maybe the next scene is when Williams is with his hooker. 
The uh, live sex show is next. A live sex show is next. Okay. When they mix the sexuality and the violence, I like it. So we have Skalenda there. We also have Faye there. I'm sorry, not Faye. No, uh, uh, Jane. Jane, who's recording everything, which is for her and her cuck husband. She's dressed very inconspicuously in her trench coat <laughs> and a hat or whatever. <laughs> I actually really, I mean, I don't want to go too descriptive into how the editing is, but I actually really like the editing in this scene where you have her reactions to it and the close-ups on her make it even more like, you know, it make it even more uh, intimate in a good and a bad way, I guess. But Would you say just... it builds to a climax? Yeah, it kind of does. I mean, and yeah, yeah, no uh, pun completely intended. But uh, and then, but Fulci does a good job with the widescreen stuff in this too, where he has the some of the scenes of uh, like Mickey in the in the foreground, and then you have like the blurred focus of the two performers back and forth. Like that, it's actually a really well well done scene. Um, it's 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 a tasteful scene despite its uh, content. And nobody in the theater's beaten off to this. I didn't get that. <laughs> There was even couples in there. They were just kind of holding each other tenderly, like, oh, this is nice. It was yeah, like I think been, it was what that might have been that might have been something they couldn't show. Um, truth be told, <laughs> they, they did um uh actually they did not uh male nudity was still somewhat frowned full, full frontal male nudity, anyways, was still somewhat frowned upon at this time. That was something they did not like showing in their films, which not that that's uh, that's changed a little bit in modern day, but it seemed like what Travis Bickle had in his head when he's like, I'm going to take Sybil to this, uh, to this. That's movie. what I was, was thinking. Like, I was waiting, <laughs> waiting for Travis Bickle to, to walk in <laughs> with his date. <laughs> Just wanted some nice date with a, with his new lady, something nice and sweet and tender and romantic. And I, I will say the, uh, the, the male nudity taboo is definitely reversed because you see more dong than, uh, than tits in movies these days. Yeah, these American films. Never thought I'd say this. Fuck that. Let me see your penis, dog. Yeah, I would say I I would agree with that, especially in horror films. It's like it's like a it's like a problem if you put nudity in a mainstream <laughs> horror film now. Yeah. It's weird. Like that was one of my. I mean, not that not that, you know I'm not some perv who expects to have crazy amounts of nudity in every movie but it was like it was like a thing in the slasher movies to have some and i'm and like it's one of those things where yeah you fine put put male nudity in a film that doesn't bother me but give us female nudity too if you're gonna do it you know that's always been my my thing but right you know it's either way like that was one of the things i thought with the new halloween movies they like they like try to make sure that there's no nudity in them rather than just you know whatever (laughs) you know well i think modern horror is uh it's almost it's sure like to have gay lovers, but no nudity. Yeah, yeah. It's almost become like too feminist and uh like associated with the gay community. So they're like anything that is considered misogynist or heterosexual, we're ju- we're just not gonna do that anymore. Well, like that's one of the things I don't know if you guys enjoyed X, the Ty West film, but that was one aspect to it I enjoyed, is it felt like a, a throwback horror movie. I think Brett and I both disliked it, but yeah, I think yeah. I liked it maybe a little more than you, but I little, still it was a little too slow for me. But uh I'd watch it again. I, I have not seen Pearl and I would like to see Pearl. So I might have to watch X again, but I'm not sure. I I I, I did like Ty West going into X, 
So I was excited for it and was just disappointed. But you, you don't need to watch X again to see Pearl. <laughs> it's uh well, it's a prequel, first of all. And second, no, no, you don't really you actually don't need to watch it again. Like there's there's a lot of questions they don't answer in it either. Okay. Like you'd be surprised they're the same character. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was I was a little disappointed that Jenna Ortega was the only one that didn't uh go all the way uh in, in that movie. <laughs> Like, yeah, I, uh, I have, I, it was one of those things where she's so young that it might be a thing where she's, <laughs> she's waiting. Like, it's like, it's like, we haven't earned it yet. <laughs> uh, but cause I was thinking, I, I remember thinking of like, is she actually going to do this? Like when that scene happens and of course she doesn't, it was a thing where, oh, it's like, uh, when I was a kid, I had a crush on Brittany snow because of that, uh, the movie, the pacifier with Vin Diesel, uh, oh, that yeah. she was in as the older <laughs> sister. And I was like, oh. Uh, get they get to see Britney so naked now 15 years later <laughs> but yeah I guess what you're talking about is a little similar to like Millie Bobby Brown and like I don't want to see her naked over the next five years I know she's going to school I don't know what if she's taking on various projects or maybe she's gonna be the type of actor that doesn't want to show nudity but it's like okay I saw you in Stranger Things and I I do not want to see nude scenes with you until you're like 30. Well, Millie Bobby Brown got the uh, Olsen twins, Hillary Duff treatment where it's like countdown to 18. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, know? yeah. I mean, not for me, <laughs> but by, by the media, you know? Yeah. And, kind of like they had the countdown to 18 on her when she was like 12. We're like, Oh, like, uh, this is a little much. Yeah. And it's like, she's like ni- probably 19 now. Maybe, you know, like it seems like we lost a couple of years with the pandemic. So she could be fucking 20 or 21 for all I know. But she's, as far yeah. as I'm concerned, she's like still 15 and I don't want to see her again until she's 30. Like Jen Ortega. I don't, I don't think I saw anything from her before she was in the, the new school the whatever scream five um well she had she had done um well actually she has a very small role in iron man three people forget okay. about that one when she i was never saw quite, that so she was quite young she played the she played like the vice i think the vice president's daughter in it you see her in one scene but um she she was in the babysitter part two that was sort of her intro to being a scream queen before she was okay. in scream and and acted that uh that dave Grohl movie whatever that was studio 666 or whatever yeah oh yeah yep. Then they killed the drummer for real. (laughs) (laughs) Like, seriously, the drummer died for real a week after it hit theaters. Yeah. 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 It's like, let's go to this comedy where they kill all the the members of Foo Fighters, including the one that died for real. Uh, It's a snuff film. (laughs) Got Jeff Garwin and Whitney. uh, What's her name in there? Uh, Whitney uh, Cummings, Cummings? Mm-hmm. yeah, it's not that good. <laughs> so back to uh, New York Ripper, we have the live sex show. Jane is uh, pleasing herself, recording the audio. Scalenda's there, just kind of watching everything, and then uh, shows over. Uh, Zora, what what's Zora's character's name? I forget. Uh, does she have a name? Ava is what it is in the uh, credits. Oh, okay. Or Eva. Not important. Not important. I guess since she fucked a a gay guy, it wasn't that good. Because a fellow actress asks how it was. She goes, meh. 
He goes backstage. Just another day at the office. I mean, they only drew five people, so it's not like they're like selling the place out. <laughs> and then, so does she go into her like apartment, or is that just like a big green room? Like, it was I didn't just get a that dressing cause, room because it seemed like pretty big for a dressing room. Because well, it may have been, but also she talks about how the light is out. She yeah, she keeps calling a guy's name, uh, Joe. I think is mm-hmm. the name she keeps calling. Because he, you know, the lights out, and obviously the killer tampered with the light. I think we learn. And I was really Robert like the De Niro. Way he is... unscrewed the light bulb. And yeah, they, like... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the light bulb was broken on the floor. Yep, she stepped on it. I, I really like the way this is shot with like the the green light, and then how dark the blood looks in the green light. Um, and the the cinematographer for this actually shot Deep Red in 1975, okay. which is a a really well shot film. And he was supposed to shoot Suspiria, but him and Argento had uh, some kind of disagreement over the way the movie should look. But he's a really good cinematographer, Luigi uh, Cuvieller. I hope I'm I, I, that might be a name that I have a hard time with, but. Um, he yeah he's he's a good cinematographer and this again was another another one of Fulci's breaks from his usual crew because nor his normal cinematographer at this time was Sergio Salvati so this was a a slight change for him in that department but also I did want to say there are a couple times where when the performer is leaving you can see him but also when it cuts back to show that uh Mickey has left his seat you can see uh an African-American gentleman uh sitting in the middle uh and that is actually in the white jacket. That's actually James Sampson who played Willie in Stage Fright. Okay. Yep. Oh, yeah, it's a it's a very that. very quick shot of him. But I did yep. not recognize it. But uh, I remember Willie from Stage Fright right between the eyes. <laughs> right between the eyes. <laughs> right between the eyes. The scene, the scene in the dressing room influenced every movie that came out in the mid two thousands. That actually, that actually has a good. I that that is a good jump scare. I was realizing it this past time I watched it when you know the killer suddenly leaps out with a bottle and starts the <laughs> noise. Uh, I was making a joke about the green lighting. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> every movie in the mid two thousands. Oh gosh, yeah, like all the green. saw the saw movies have that look like. To a T. Yep. Yep. I don't know why that was. It was just like every movie was green. <laughs> like what? What is going on? It looked cool yeah. at the time. Now it's like jarring. Yeah, everyone's using an Instagram filter on their cameras now. Now everything's Every- just black. Monochromatic. It's the darkest movie ever made. <laughs> The darkest. Yeah. Batman. And I started, yeah, I started noticing that with modern films. Like sometimes when I go to the theater, I'm like, are they dimming their projectors or are the movies is this damn dark? Like, I don't, yeah. you know, it's this, it's one of those things where I didn't used to feel that way when I was a kid watching movies at the theater. I thought the lighting was pretty good. And now no, it's just Ian, like Ian, you're just, you're, so just d- you're just in a Dolby cinema. The projector's still on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I have an eye disease too, so that could be something to do with it. But it's like one of those things where, what the heck? Like, you do know, you ever go to a Dolby cinema? Do, do they have AMC Dolby's out there? I don't know if they have. It's very possible the one in Augusta is. Um, okay. That's a Regal, and the sound system's really good there, so it, that could be a Dolby cinema. I'm not sure they don't have any AMC. Well, the, the Dolby cinema is more with with the projector than it is the sound. You would think sound oh, is because it? of Dolby, 
but uh it's, it's a little bit of both but yeah it's dolby yeah. vision and dolby atmos so well the the lighting at the augusta theater which i don't go to that often because it's it's it is about a 30 minute drive i have one that's about 10 minutes away from my house that's closer and the lighting's usually not as good there but when you go to dolby cinema the they like to show off the projector before the show kind of like like they do with imax they'll do a side-by-side with because it it advertises you know we have the deepest blacks we have the darkest yep. blacks the the biggest contrast the most yeah. contrast they'll, they'll show like an explosion a side-by-side of dolby cinema and, and other and then they'll do uh like the screen will just go black and you think it's often it's like the projector's still on this is just a Dolby cinema. It says, it says, yes, the projector is still on. And then everybody who's <laughs> never been in that theater before laughs. Because it's hilarious. <laughs> but they play it before every movie that, that runs in there. Right. Yeah, it's like it's like that Regal commercial I've seen a hundred times where they talk about like the the famous movie lines. And it's it's funny the first time you see it that it just gets really, really old quick. Yeah, they, they run the Nicole Kidman ad right before it. Yeah, I've never actually seen that one. So uh, that's because I don't have any of those theaters here. So you don't go to AMCs typically. You go to Regals. No, AMCs out there. So you don't get the full experience. Yeah, no, we got a we have a Regal in Augusta, Maine, and uh, Waterville, which is right next to where I live, has a like a more independent chain in the Northeast called Flagship Cinema. So okay, Okay. that's interesting. So you you don't get to get on the A list like like we do over here. Yeah, no, I mean the closest, the closest IMAX theater is like a good hour and a half away. So. Oh yeah, but they don't have like, a, do they have like a subscription service at any of those theaters? Uh, well, Regal, I think Regal does. Regal has an unlimited service. Okay, because mm. that's I do that with AMC. You get three movies a week for I think it's like twenty two dollars a month now. One movie at the Dolby is twenty bucks, so yeah. it like pays for itself after one. I work at a movie theater, so I don't really have to pay for anything, but I have a kid, so I rarely get to the cinema. I mean, I wouldn't be there multiple times a week necessitating a subscription, but. So we were at the, we're at the kill scene in, in the, in the green room when Zora Garoba gets killed, which is a good kill, by the way, with the broken bottle. Yeah. And I kinda, like I said, I like the blood in the green light. And then I like the part when he opens the door and you see like the red come in and then the, the the red light come in and then uh, go back to the other side when he sh- shuts the door the other way. Um, I yeah. thought I really liked that scene. I did not watch this with the wife. Probably a good idea. But if someone was fortunate enough to have a wife or a girlfriend who would be cool with this movie, I'm pretty sure this scene would uh, make her cringe. Well, <laughs> this movie is the subject of my pinned tweet on Twitter. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but um my pinned tweet on Twitter for years has been or probably about a year now, maybe a little more was uh, something like if you ever, if you ever want to know whether to continue a relationship with someone, just watch the New York Ripper with them. I said, <laughs> if they, if they, if they like it, if they like it, it means they're a keeper. If not, they're probably just going to break up with you. So. <laughs> Tarantino did that with real Bravo. So I guess that uh, Israeli wife of his likes John Wayne and Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson. She passed the test, I guess. Not my favorite John Wayne film, truth be told. I think it's I, the, some of the scenes where they're just sitting around together. I don't enjoy. I actually like El Dorado a little bit more. It's a hangout movie. Like you got to hang out with them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like El Dorado more just because that's uh, that's that's John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. So. Sure. Yep. 
Uh, so yeah, uh, we get the vaginal stab kill here with the broken bottle. And then we get to our next clip with Lieutenant Williams hanging out with his lady friend. Also, this is another big piece of evidence that this film was not uh, primarily made in America with the, I guess, the ringer on her phone is not one I have ever heard anywhere ever. And it's at the beginning of this clip. Williams. I find his duck noises fucking hilarious. I almost find them funnier without watching the movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's the funny thing. It's like just listening to them, they're almost funnier. But uh the the woman in this scene playing Kitty the prostitute, I'm actually friends with her on Facebook. Her name oh, is cool. uh Daniela Doria. Uh she goes by Daniela Cormia, uh Daniela Cormio. Uh now she uh I like to call her Fulci's favorite victim. Uh we know what happens to her in this with the razor blade, but in uh, House by the Cemetery, she gets killed at the very beginning of the movie. She gets a knife through the back of her neck and out through her mouth. Then in City of the Living Dead, she uh, uh, blood comes out of her eyes and she like throws up her entire stomach. Uh, that's a rather famous scene from that movie. And then in The Black Cat, she gets locked in a room with no oxygen to suffocate. But interestingly enough, they were actually uh, friends off screen. So mm. uh, they actually... Uh, they bought a pair of dogs together at one point, I think while filming the black cat. <laughs> so they actually got along pretty well. Um, she's actually a very nice person. So How old is she now? Uh, 65, 66, maybe. Okay. She's probably about 24 when she filmed this. The blue underground Blu-ray that I have came out in 2009, 2010, but it, all the extra content on there was from 09 with the interview with Zora and the, you know, the locations then and now they compare New York locations from 81 or 82 to 2000. Do you have the updated Blu-ray or just the one that came out? Because back the, the, the one that was released, uh, you know, a little while ago by now was the one that only had the Zora Karova interview on it. The newer one has okay. like um, another interview with her 
it's got an interview with Howard Ross, uh, another interview with Dardano Sakedi. Yeah, mine only has uh, the one interview with her and uh, yeah, so some that's lo- the that's the old like 2009 shots. Blu-ray. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I have the I have the 4K, but there's also okay, there's a 4K Blu-ray. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of what Blue Underground's become. They kind of they're kind of just remastering a lot of their old stuff now. They very rarely release anything new. Uh, kind of like Scream Factory, actually. Scream Factory has the same problem now, but uh, yeah, the they're, woman, they're not remastering um, it. You said is so. So what I'm saying is that's what Blue Underground Blue Underground is remastering a lot of their okay. old content now. Of their that's old, almost okay. that's they almost are, okay. all they're doing. They're not really releasing any new films. Sure. And Scream Factory is doing kind of the same thing. Okay. They're not really releasing anything new. The, the woman uh, dubbing Daniela Doria in this sequence is a woman named Pat Stark. And she actually is another one whose voice you'd recognize from pieces. She dubs probably, well, she probably dubs a few of the different college students. She has the, I think she's the one who says the famous line about uh, uh, having uh, uh, having sex on a waterbed. Okay. Yeah, uh, smoking pot and having sex on a waterbed at the same time. There's nothing better than that. She's the one who says that in that movie, I think. We talked about it with Zolly in our episode on sorority babes and the slime ball bullorama. Full Moon Features has a streaming service. And if you subscribe, and I believe you have to pay for the option of the, the full year, you get the Puppet Master Blu-ray box set, which is... I don't know, it's like 11 or 12 films or something like that. Or you can pick out, I think it's 10 or 12 Blu-rays from their library, which also includes Blue Underground. So the thing is, I was like, well, I already got a bunch. I mean, I got the Stage Fright Blue Underground. I got the New York Ripper Blue Underground. It's like, I don't know how many Blue Undergrounds I can get to make it worth it getting the subscription for a year for full moon features. But I don't know if you're if you're telling me now they got a new 4K New York Ripper and some other things like that. If Blue Underground's kind of uh, remastering some of their old stuff, then maybe I'll give it another look. Although they did say Blu-ray. Maybe they have a new option now where you can get 4Ks. Do you have a lot of Blue Underground stuff? Yeah, I bought I, I pretty much have everything from them that I would want because um I can't remember the name of the site. There was one site that was doing a like a really big sale on their stuff last year. And so I ended up spending $130, I think, on pretty much all of the Blue Underground Blu-rays I wanted at the time instead of spending upwards of $300 because of the, the how good the sale was. So I just bought like literally every one that I wanted <laughs> at the time. Yeah. They um, have... Uh... I'm trying to remember the other ones I have. Is Dead and Buried? That's Blue Underground, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. I don't have yeah. that one, but that is one of them. Uh, some other ones, but yeah, it seemed like everything with Full Moon was. I mean, Full Moon has some fun stuff, but it's mostly, you know, you wouldn't really want to pay a lot for it. It's mostly. I like some of the Puppet Master movies. I prefer Trauma over Full Moon. Truth be told, I, sure. I'm more entertained by Trauma's films. Sure. Maybe in a year or two, I'll have to revisit the the full moon features uh, streaming service because it was only, God, I want to say around 60 bucks and you would have gotten that like, well, it's only a few bucks per blue underground. I'll, I'll go for that. But the problem was, I think I had most of the blue undergrounds I already wanted or I already wanted. I had so. 
I do like the interaction between Kitty and Lieutenant Williams as well. Like just the, the nature of their relationship where uh, he, he asks, he's like, can you make me some coffee? And then he's, and then she's like, sweetheart, I'm a prostitute, not your wife. You want coffee, make it yourself. <laughs> right. And then, and then he's like, have you told anybody who I am that I come here? He's like, no, uh, I take my job seriously. I keep all my clients anonymous. He's like, how does he know I'm here? <laughs> but, right. uh, yeah. You stupid bitch. <laughs> you never understand because you're too stupid. <laughs> Uh, he calls her a stupid bitch for later. I think I can't remember, but you stupid bitch! You got to put it in the uh, National Born Killers clip. <laughs> you, you stupid, stupid bitch! bitch. <laughs> Turn left. Turn left to what? You stupid bitch! Oh, you stupid bitch! You stupid bitch! You stupid bitch, Mickey! That's what my father used to call me. Thought you'd be more creative than that. That's uh, what my dad called me. <laughs> uh, let's try and uh, progress to the plot a little more quickly. Just real quick. Real quick. Uh, just We haven't met the uh, the final girl yet, or not officially met the Yeah, killer. I think we're about to. Yeah. Sure. Well, let's, uh, Brett, you take it away. The next note I have is uh, that he's got total self-control and wants to provoke you and wants to be noticed, but he's neurotic and egotistical and (laughs) very, very superior minded. Okay. That's our next clip, actually. Here it is. This is the doctor describing uh, his thoughts and about the characteristics of the killer. Well, I think by now, I know every one of these phone calls from your friend, inside out. So? And so I have come to three conclusions. One, he's quite good at uh, concealing his real personality, which means total self-control. Two, he wants to provoke you. And uh, that's probably got something to do with his motives. And three... Our man, Le Voyeur, a peeper, likes to be noticed, neurotic and egotistical. Mm-hmm. Ten million people in this city, that's a hell of a lot to go on, huh? <laughs> yeah, I grant you. But, but at least we know he's not content just to, to murder his victims at random. And you can be quite sure that we're up against a very superior mind. Superior mind indeed, at least compared to Detective Williams. That was a pretty good synopsis on IMDb. A burned out cop, burned out detective. He does seem pretty burned out. He's very out of shape too, as you'll notice later when he tries to save <laughs> Kitty going up the fire escape. Theirs are tough. <laughs> God, he's not a young man. I mean, he's yeah. he's too old for this shit. Uh, although it, watching this movie made me think of a conversation, Brett, that you and I have had on this very show numerous times about like people in the eighties when they're like forty, they look like they're fucking sixty. The, the Motel Hell uh, conversation about uh, <laughs> Farmer Vincent. Yeah. I got to look it up now. How old do you think Detective Williams is in this film? Jack Headley 
Well, I, I already know the answer to this what, question. What, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, he was he was he would he would have been probably 52, depending on when his birthday was. So I think he was born in 1930. <laughs> October 28th, 29th, according to IMDb. IMDb. OK, he might have been 51 then. Sure. Yeah, yeah but he looks uh, he looks like he's in his 60s. Yeah, he looks 60. Yeah, he does actually. Did he's actually he actually he he had um roles in some Hammer movies. Uh, oh, I don't know if I can name any of the specific ones, but he did have roles in some Hammer films. Uh, he's also in a James Bond movie. Actually, um, he has a very small role at the very beginning of For Your Eyes Only. He gets killed on a boat, but actually, his character has more of a bearing on the story because he is the father of right the Melina Havelock the, the Greek, character, the Greek the, Bond girl. Yep. Yeah, so she's the reason. Uh, he is. He is the reason. His killing is the reason that she seeks revenge in the movie. Interestingly right. enough, right? Well, that is a very fun fact. I'm a huge Bond fan, so uh, yeah, As I, I do recall. I do recall the scene now. It's very bizarre. It's just like a hel- helicopter comes in, just guns down this family on the boat. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, Brett, you watched that kind of recently. Few months ago, right? Yeah, I think yeah, within the last year for sure. My favorite Roger Moore James Bond movie. Oh, really? Directed by astronaut yep. John Glenn. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, sure yeah the astronaut himself, even though even though the name's spelled differently, need an alias. Um <laughs> he, was, he was already he was already so successful at so many other things in life. He had the right stuff. <laughs> he sure did. The right stuff for several Bond films. I think he directed a few of them. But um, the detective definitely seems like he's about 60, 61, maybe 62. He's close to retirement. Well, co- cops retire early, too. So he's he looks like he's he pension retirement. Yeah, he kind of does. Although, I mean, I guess taking the 80s into account, I could say like, oh, I bet you he's 57 or something, but he's even younger. He's 51 or 52 when this is being made. Well, how old was uh, Danny Glover when they did the first Lethal Weapon? Like 42? I don't know, but he's supposed to be turning uh, 50. 1946, so yeah, 41, I think. <laughs> yep. You knew Danny uh, Glover's I, birth year off the top of your head? I'm good I'm good at memorizing numbers. Okay. But I would've, wouldn't have figured you to memorize Danny Glover's birth year. Yeah, I well, I just it's it's uh, you can ask me the name, you can ask me the birth year of certain celebrities. I can probably name a good amount of them. Sure, just because I'm good at memorizing numbers. Um, there, there's a few I I know the the birth year too as well. But the Danny Glover that threw me off. That was that was a good pull. <laughs> he's supposed to yeah, he's supposed to be 50 in that film, and he he actually I mean he's kind of always looked the same age. So like as he's gotten older, he's actually kind of looked okay for his age. But in that right. film. He could, probably could pass for 45 or 50. But then when you see him in Saw, sure. he could still pass for almost the same age. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Or in Shooter. <laughs> the next scene is the pool hall scene. Oh, I love this. I, this scene. <laughs> this scene's so ridiculous. This I, 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 Morales got silver toes. <laughs> yeah, that all these lines that these two guys deliver. And, uh, when a twat is hot, it's more comfortable. Yeah, just everything. It's just uh, that it, it's a disgusting scene, but it's still unintentionally hilarious. Yeah, I, I have two notes from the scene. One that the guy's big toe is the most disgusting toe or maybe thing I've ever fucking seen in my life. That almost made me puke. 
And the other guy has so much junk. He was getting like, I don't know what you call guy camel toe, <laughs> but like the cameras like zooming in on his junk. You know, they have the male gaze. That's the female gaze. <laughs> it almost warrants a segment of dick talk. Not quite, <laughs> but almost. I will reference dick talk in passing. We'll not get a full we don't discussion on it. his dick. We don't see Both his of these guys, the, the actor who plays Morales and the one who plays Chico, they've done a ton of work, actually. They both have like 90 credits. Is Chico um, the one with the toe? No, Morales. that would be Morales. Okay. Um, Chico's the, the guy, one that uh, he's, uh, the, so he's the hype man. I can't. Um, <laughs> let me see if I'm getting. I One of them is Josh Cruz and the other is Antoine Pagan. Um, Josh Cruz... Josh Cruz who was played, Chico. Who played Chico. Yeah, who played Chico. He was in like Collateral and 24. He's been in a ton of stuff. And uh, Pagan was actually in Stripes. I don't know if he's one of the soldiers okay. or something, but he's in that. So they've done, they've both done a lot of work. If this movie was made today, Chico would have whipped it out and windmilled it like he was a Rick Was Flair. he Francis in Stripes? Wasn't Francis uh, a Hispanic character? I would have to look. I don't, uh, that would have been Pagan. Hold on a minute. Stripes, he was Hector. 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 Okay. Next one of you sons of bitches call me Francis, I'll kill you. <laughs> it's been um, so long since I've seen it, I don't even remember. I literally watched it two weeks ago because I was meeting PJ Souls and I can't remember it. <laughs> but, yeah. Brett, what did you say about uh, Ric Flair? Sorry, I was going to say, if they, if they made this movie today, Chico would have whipped it out and windmilled it like he was Ric Flair. <laughs> Is that uh, what, like the... A story from one of the like the plane rides or what's it that was, story from? It was allegedly on the plane ride from hell. Well, plane r- <laughs> Tommy Dreamer said he used to do it all the time, but the the story was on the pr- plane ride from hell. He he was walking around in just his uh, his ring robe <laughs> and just uh, windmilling it around the cabin, and then he cornered one of the uh, flight attendants in the galley. That sounds like Jamie Fox. <laughs> Not that we have to talk about the specifics here, but I wonder is this scene actually a rape scene or is it more non-consensual consent in a way what she what happens here i think the latter because obviously she says it, stop it depends on how she feels about it after you know she, she says does stop, say stop but yeah. she does like it yeah so, so it's like it's complicated one of those more complicated scenes that you wouldn't be able to film today depends if a white guy walks in it's also a situation in which the people who would bitch about this scene would not dis- they would not discuss such a a scene or a uh, a situation because uh, consent cannot be given after the fact or if somebody right, enjoyed right, it like exactly. they, they would not play out like that in their minds once yeah. if she says no at the beginning then it's of course it's no which for the most part it is unless you're James Bond then it's <laughs> Yeah, more New York uh, location shooting here because this is uh, Spanish Harlem where this scene was filmed. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Spanish Harlem. <laughs> well, I, I think this would be like the uh, the human tornado where he's banging that white girl and her, her husband comes in and she yells rape. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, Bitch, I actually, are you for real? <laughs> I was surprised that Alexandra Deli Colley was 24 and she filmed this and she looks older. I don't know if they made her look older, if she just has that sort of look a little bit. I mean, she looks good. Jane, I'm not Jane is that. 24? Yeah. 
Yeah, she's 24. Yeah, she looks she like, like she's 40. 40s. Yeah. Yeah, she could look. Yeah, she looks older. I don't know if they made her look slightly older because I think the character's supposed to be slightly older. Yeah. Unlike Daniela Doria, who does look about like 23 or 24. Well, her cuck right. husband looked like he was about 50. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he could have been robbing the cradle, but damn, that's a lot of big age difference. I, 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 we forgot to mention earlier the, the 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 very funny look on his face when he's listening to the tape. <laughs> the way he's <laughs> the way he looks when he's listening to that tape is hilarious. <laughs> and when he gets the talking to from Detective Williams about his lifestyle, he's so uh, you know pissed off about it. But it's kind of like, well, what did you expect? Especially in the eighties. Yeah. She was free to live and free to die, too. Uh, is it time for Dr. Davis to get a blue boy or what? Is that where we're at? <laughs> the, the, That's the kind of, that would next. be close the, to around this time. The train is Oh, next. the train Let's scene, finally. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, good suspense sequence. And yeah, she's on the train. And that's when you see Mickey Scalenda again in the train with her. Good jump scare when he sort of pops up when the light goes out at one point, just pops up right, right near her. Right. He's yeah. Yeah. Because just... he was in the middle of the train and she was kind of by the door and then the lights go out and he's on the other side of her, isn't it? It's like is Scream Six, it right? <laughs> yeah. Scream Six in New York. They went on the subway. <laughs> that counts. That's actually that's actually a pretty good train sequence, too. But yeah. this one I do like just because that 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 jump scare is good and you don't really know what he's going to do. You don't, um, you, you know, at this point, you don't really know who the killer is. So. Um, it's one of those moments where you're not sure. You you assume it's him. It's a good red herring, but they're kind of cheating because this guy's a a sex offender in his own right and a violent sex offender. So it's like, well, we got one sort of murder because he does try to kill her later. So it's at least a, we got one attempted murderer to throw you off the track of the real murderer. You know, he looks really creepy too. Like he looks, he's got. He's the actually, yeah. I I think they may do something to make him look slightly different as well because he's actually a pretty handsome guy. Uh, normally, I mean, I've seen him in other films, and I think he looks a little bit better than he does here. So I do think they're making him look slightly edgier. Uh, but yeah, I like the scene, and then obviously what happens after, I really like too. This is one of my favorite sort of dream sequences in the history of film because it kind of isn't a dream sequence at the same time but that uh, that actually is kind of cool to me like i don't think many movies have done like the not like part part dream sequence dream sequence almost it's a it's a gaslighting sequence (laughs) yeah and then also that that kill well quote unquote kill in the theater is my favorite kill of the movie that's such a vicious kill with all the different shots of the knife near the throat. And then you get the shot, you get the really cool shot from inside the throat too. Like you see the hole from inside the throat at the very end. You're talking about her dream. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right after she escapes. Yeah. She gets cut in the leg and I was kind of wondering why, I I guess why I wonder why her boyfriend didn't finish the job. (laughs) Well, we also, what makes it more interesting, why you're not sure whether it's a dream or not obviously is because you don't see you don't see uh andrea oki pinty's face until at the theater scene you don't see him at the scene where her leg gets cut so that's why you're wondering what's really happening where you believe it could have been a dream so it has enough credibility you don't see his face when she initially gets cut which is real and then when she gets killed that's obviously supposed to be a dream so Uh um you're not actually sure that 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 makes that makes it real enough like when you see oki pinty again at, at the hospital with her you're not entirely sure like you're like okay could he he could be the killer 
But then when he's revealed not to be, you still believe it at the time. Why was Skalenda at the hospital? Or was that part of the dream? I, I don't I don't remember part, I don't remember him at the hospital. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. him being there. I, I wrote down that the or maybe it was Peter. I don't know. But it was I wrote yeah, down Peter shows up at the hospital. hospital. Yeah, Peter shows up at the hospital. That's my point. Is when he shows up, you think he could be the killer, but then when he reveals himself to be her boyfriend, you actually believe it because you don't see him in that first part of the dream when her leg gets cut, which is the only part you know right. is real. Okay. Well, or so you think you think I, part of it is real, but then obviously later you see the knife mark. So she figures something out with that. Yeah. And with she's on crutches. You can tell but, she was yeah. injured in her leg. I, I can, my notes confuse me because I wrote killer because I didn't know who was who at this point in the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the woman who plays Faye, Amata Suska, this was one of uh, only four films she was in. Uh, I don't think she's bad in this film. She does have a very striking look. I do think the film would have worked better. Uh, originally, Fulci was supposed to cast Catriona McCall in this, and he had worked with her in the Gates of Hell trilogy. She's in City of the Living Dead, The Beyond, and House by the Cemetery. And I think Fulci's films had had, had such a notorious reputation at that point already, and I think that's why she declined this role. Obviously, being from England, she probably knew, like, you know, the video nasties were already a big thing by that point. So I do think she thought... Eh, it might be kind of done starring in his films because of the reputation that they're that they have here. Although I do think Suska works well because she she portrays that cold sort of disconnected character pretty well, which is kind of what this character is supposed to be. And like I said, she had only she I think I said she had only been in like four uh, three or four other films. I remember her being a little bit better in Hunters of the Golden Cobra which is one of the many Indiana Jones uh, ripoffs that the Italians made in the 80s, where she actually plays dual roles in that movie. I think from there we get uh, Jane and Scalenda with their meetup. Yep. He ties her to the bed. She pays him. She paid him? I guess I missed that part. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, again, he's supposed to be some kind of gigolo of sorts, I think, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't really clear at first why she was paying him, and then, yeah, it was kind of implied that he was a, a gigolo. When they're in his apartment later and there's all the porno mags and everything lying around, are we meant to believe that he's a model in some of these magazines or he just likes them for because he's a very sexual person and likes to have been a a model as well? Because I think you see one of the pictures, but okay, I couldn't tell if you saw him in the pictures or not, but okay, so you're saying he was in one of them? Yeah, I figured that had to have been why there was so many around. So we have the we have their yeah their meetup. I'm trying to remember all the, the exactly in sequence where we are. But. There's some back and forth there. So they have uh, yeah she gets tied to the bed and then they they do the scene where Davis buys his blue boy. <laughs> then we get the uh, radio DJ announcing that they're looking for a guy with two fingers missing. Yeah, missing I had a note about fingers. this too. So this is also. Stephen Lawoto doing a uh, double uh, dubbing duty because he's um, <laughs> he's he's dubbing Andrea Oki Pinti as uh, as the killer uh, uh, Peter uh, and then he's dubbing this DJ as well putting on a slightly different voice for it and also another dubbing note for pieces he dubs the main character in pieces uh, Kendall the college student in that movie and he also uh, just for more, um, I just thought of this. He dubs Stephen Luoto in A Blade in the Dark and in uh, Lucio Fulci's Conquest. So if you see him in those movies, all dubbed by the same guy in the English soundtrack. With Fulci doing this movie, at least a significant part of it being filmed in New York, 
why didn't he just get New York actors? It seems like at least a, some of them are. You talked about a couple yeah. of them being New York actors. Why didn't he just do all that? And then he wouldn't have to, I mean, dub with other people. He wouldn't have to hire dubbers. He just could have had them dub their own lines and ADR and whatnot. True. I don't know. It could have been that they were more expensive. Union rules were different. That was a big thing when um, Italian directors go overseas. They hated the American union rules, like oh, the okay. Screen Actors Guild rules. So that could have been part of it as well. So no union in Italy? No. And that was a very that was a very uh, big thing for Sergio Martino when he came to America in the 80s. He hated the union rules, which is why <laughs> he found an actor named Daniel Green, who was a who was not with the Screen Actors Guild and just used him to star in all of his films. Okay, um, an American actor who wasn't in the Screen Actors Guild, which also, uh, did you guys notice Fulci's cameo in this film? I don't think yeah. we talked about that, where he plays the police chief yep. early in the yep. film when he shows mm-hmm. up for one scene. Yeah, he was kind of a Hitchcock of sorts, although he <laughs> he usually gave himself speaking roles. He usually gave himself bigger roles than just a very small cameo, okay. usually playing authority figures. In this case, the police chief. Does it seem like uh, the words didn't match up as much as the others? watching this so i thought maybe he might have just been speaking italian or or very terrible english he's dubbed by i don't know who he's dubbed by the name but he's he's dubbed by the same guy who dubbed him in zombie when he showed up okay. as the uh the editor-in-chief at the newspaper a guy putting on uh, a slight new york accent in the dubbing mario mastria does that sound familiar well that's Mar- probably the italian that's probably the italian dubber okay yeah, because mm-hmm. both the if you go on like IMDb, both the Italian and English are sometimes listed, but the English ones are are usually not as complete as the Italian ones are. Yeah, it, it doesn't. A lot of these say U.S. version or English version. That one just yeah. says voice dubbing. Yeah, so that would be Italian. Most of the time, they weren't dubbing their own voices in the Italian versions either. So there you go. Um, and like even. Even really well-known actors like Tomas Milian and Fabio Testi weren't there dubbing their own voices in English or Italian for the most of their films. Okay. You're such a wealth of knowledge, Ian. <laughs> We've gotten so much information. That's uh, I mean, we haven't talked about the plot as much, but that's actually, I prefer that to get, I like more, I like fun facts more than I like just talking about the plot. So our fun facts section at the end of this episode will be very short because we've already given you about 40 of them. Uh, it will tell you there's uh, there's like seven fun facts on IMDb, and three of them are that it's uh, an actress's debut. <laughs> oh, really? They just they have shit for trivia. I figured with a film like The New York River, they would have had like fifty things in there. Usually, for the Italian films, they don't have too much. Oh, really? But one of them is Jack Headley's voice is dubbed by another actor in the English language version. It is quite yeah, reasonable. It, was. <laughs> it is quite reasonable for having a British actor to play a North American character. Why, why is that trivia? Like, uh, that's, <laughs> that's <not> trivia. <laughs> a good thing we have Ian Urza to tell us all the fun facts that nobody knows. That's a goof. That's not <laughs> trivia. They, they goofed by not having the English guy do his own voice. Jesus. Okay, so what happens after them? What happens after them meeting up? Uh, jane gets uh killed next she yeah she can't get out of the hotel or whatever apartment building where yeah. they're at like she can't yeah. find the exits <laughs> and well again I, yeah and that's a that's a good suspense sequence but also like to me like i was rooting for her like again to the point of this film being misogynistic i was rooting for her to get out of the the ropes and, and get it get out of there and that's a good suspense sequence when she's you know just still you know trapped in bed with him when she 
thinks he's the killer. Um, yeah. I actually really like that sequence. Her kill might actually be the tamest in the whole film, truth be told. Yeah. But we talked about, you know, arguing for or against the misogynistic nature of these films. You know, the American slashers got the same bad rap being misogynist and, you know, it treats women terribly and Siskel and Ebert, oh, it's just killing women, blah, blah, blah. Well, the final girl is always pretty strong and overcomes yep. the male exactly. killer. So the same can be said for uh, New York Ripper. She stabs him in the end. She's uh, she is not weak. She is strong. She's a she's a vice principal strong woman. I've always been of the school of thought that it was a polar opposite of the misogynistic uh, school of thought. You know, all the all these horror movies are secretly uh, uh, about being gay. <laughs> With Honcho and Blue Boy? I, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but every horror movie is claimed by the gay community now. Yeah, there has been a lot of them. I mean, in this one, gay aspects to it, but I don't know. There's also a lot of stuff in the 80s with the with the trans killers with Just to Kill and Sleepaway Camp and Terror Train. and The community can claim that more, but... The guy doing the duck voice who is a metaphor for being a transgender. <laughs> trans species is what it is. I don't know. Maybe they don't claim this one, but... It's common. I heard a lot of people talk about uh, Fulci's comedy in his films. Is that something that comes out to you? Who's seen probably all of them? The dark well, humor. He has, he has a dark sense. He has, yeah, he has a dark sense of humor. I mean, it's 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 there within his films. I mean, making the killer quack like a duck, I think, was definitely <laughs> was definitely one aspect to it for the for the darker humor and and some of the interactions between, you know, Davis and Williams, I think was part of it as well. The sarcastic nature of their relationship. I haven't actually seen any of his pure comedy films because they're basically impossible to find. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. Well, the Italian sex comedy genre is like way, way low on the list compared to like every other genre of Italian cinema out there. Like, um, you know, Lorber doesn't have it. (laughs) No, I would say first ranked is spaghetti Westerns. Then you've got probably Italian horror after that. And that, and even the subsets of all of that, like the cannibal movies and everything, then probably Giallo after that, then Eurocrime, because even here, the Eurocrime movies aren't aren't that big. They've, they've gotten bigger over the last few years. And then you'd even have like your other, you know, exploitation genres, like your Nazi exploitation, and then probably your macaroni combat movies, which were war movies the Italians were making in the 70s and 80s. And right. then behind that is probably the sex comedy films. The only releases of those that I can really think of were by no shame dvd back in the day and since then they've really never gotten any and i think a lot of blu-ray companies are kind of just i think they're kind of afraid because i don't think they're going to sell they probably don't think they're going to sell that well although with all these directors getting so many releases for their films eventually some one of these companies is going to try them they're they'll probably start with sergio martino's sex comedy films because he was the he he was the biggest guy in that genre okay Every time I hear the term sex comedy, I just think of the Borat joke where he says uh, Kazakhstan's favorite movie is the American sex comedy, The Accused. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What scene do we get to next? So it would be probably, wouldn't it be um, 
uh, Williams going to see uh, Doctor Lodge. Yep, probably. Yeah, yep. that's the next one. Nothing Acting will fill morally. the void. Yeah, Acting morally superior to him takes it very okay. hard. The next note I have after that is Mickey Scalenda. I can't read my own handwriting, but I think uh, it says he was a Greek. He was identified by the night clerk at a flea bag, flea bag motel. So, so they must have got the uh, the 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 two fingers missing thing from uh, Faye, and then uh, they announced it over the radio or whatever. The DJ was talking about it. Yep. And then this uh, this flea bag night clerk uh, offered up Scalenda as the uh, primary suspect, and they're like, okay. Okay, so maybe that's how they got the name. He just like wipes his hands. Job well done. We got him. Yeah. Let's go get him. <laughs> yeah, and Dr. Davis tries to explain to him multiple times. Like, uh, he's like a 42nd Street, you know, idiot, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's and not like, smart he enough. He says this, yeah, the killer has like a superior mind. It he seems affluent, like it doesn't, it just doesn't check out. And in you know Williams is like I don't care I'm I'm old I'm about to retire let's just get this guy I don't give a damn why <laughs> why he's doing it not what you know it's what you can prove <laughs> and I can prove that he's missing two fingers and that he killed people mm-hmm. and he's left-handed according to the coroner that's also another part of it but he's trying to get done in time for lunch people <laughs> I forget what was the prank that Davis played on Heather. He like pretends to kill her. So oh yeah, was... when he like sneaks up on her. Yeah, yeah. And then Heather asks him what what he thinks of the killer again, like what he what he thinks of his mo or whatever. Yeah, he's got one minor defect. He hasn't chosen you as a victim yet. Yeah, yeah. I like <laughs> what that. A great guy. <laughs> and then See, I think this is around this time is when Fake goes back home, right after being injured. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because that happens before the whole uh, kitty sequence happens and the them trying to trace the phone call, I think. Yeah, she ends up at Peter's apartment. I don't know, it was implied that they lived apart, but he, she was staying at his place so she, he could take care of her. That was another thing I was wondering how she made that leap because she starts looking into his thing. She sees the medical bills from the hospital, which is for the, Peter's daughter. But I was like, why is she starting to get suspicious of him? Why is she looking well, through his things? Well, they do say Dr. Davis talks about at one point how she suffers hallucinations and doesn't know how to differ them from reality because she's so smart. I don't know if that explanation makes that much sense, but that's is what is said. Um, that's right. You do say she's I smart. Think, uh, I think Peter says, how can a, a woman with an IQ of 180 be so dumb? Or something? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then she says, you you short circuit my brain or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great English dubbing lines there. Male presence or something. Yeah. And yeah, well, I think I, I think her suspicion just comes from maybe not knowing whether it was a dream or not. And she eventually sees that knife mark and she figures part of it was real. Then she finds the knife, right? She finds the broken off knife at the house. So that's when she that's when she absolutely knows that it's him. I mean, yeah. there's no other way right at the end there. Yeah. Why the heck would he have? Why would he have a broken knife? And he is in her dream. I guess maybe that made her suspicious and she wants to pursue it a little bit. But it just seemed like I was like, why is she looking through his stuff? And why does a medical bill all of a sudden make him the killer or, you know, sus- suspicious of being the killer? 
Well, yeah, and then they had the the bedroom with the kids' stuff and all the dolls and stuff. And they, I, until they they you know just like laid it out there and explained it to you, I was like, I don't get this. <laughs> What's going on? Like this part, I don't really understand. We do get a scene with uh, his daughter, the nurse reading that story with the ducks and the quack 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 and the daughter who apparently just lives at the hospital like she she has uh she's amputated her yeah, arm she has some sort I of immune disorder too. i think because she's yeah i think dying. that's what's implied yeah or, or cancer maybe i don't know but yeah but it's like she just stays there and like nobody comes to visit <laughs> apparently uh violetta jean who plays the uh black hospital nurse uh, was actually married to Lucio Fulci after this film. Oh, wow. How long and did she that was marriage his last? third wife? I don't know. It couldn't have been that long because uh, he he definitely divorced her before he died in 1996. So I assume it was probably toward the end of the late 80s. Not a lot of information is known about that marriage, actually. Mm. Uh, Troy Howard talked about it in his commentary. Um, actually, Paolo Malco, who played Dr. Davis, was the best man at their wedding. So Oh, we have uh, that scene at the hospital where Dr. Davis and Lieutenant Williams are looking on. Some they're it's almost like they're observing the little girl, right? Yeah. And then Davis is like, "Oh, it's got to be Peter." Basically, <laughs> eventually, yeah, he he had gone to visit them too. He was wondering he because he at one point he uh, he goes to visit them to try to make sure because he's like are you absolutely are you absolutely sure mickey scalenda was the person who attacked you just because uh, of the fact that he's he really doesn't think scalenda is the killer at that right. point um he's really against that idea and obviously eventually that gets confirmed uh sometime after kitty's death which the whole sequence with with kitty is good because you have the good misdirection with the with the phone tracing thing mm-hmm. yeah and you know i think if he had i think if if they had tried, I, I wonder if they could have saved her if they hadn't gone to the, the location and just gone to Kitty's house. Cause he says, I've got Kitty here. Like why, you know, it's like, why not send someone to her house? This is a very dark night situation where, you know, the person <laughs> makes the wrong choice. Uh, although I kind of like it better than the dark night would be told. I'm not the biggest fan of that film. Um, hot take, but yeah, <laughs> not these days. Everybody's <laughs> jumping off the bandwagon. <laughs> I'm not a big I'm not a big Nolan fan in general, truth be told. I like his I like his dramatic films and his science fiction films better than his action films because I think he films action so blandly that I really don't like the action scenes in his films that much. But yeah, I do like him quite a bit. However, um it's a common criticism, like he doesn't know how to film action. I don't I don't mind how he films it, but yeah, I wouldn't say he's at the forefront of action cinematography. <laughs> But uh, I think that leads us to our last clip, which is the phone tracing. I thought it was a bit reminiscent of Black Christmas. Yeah, I agree. Although I think Black Christmas's scene was better and it was uh, maybe with the editing and just the visual of the guy kind of running back and forth, trying to find the where the number is or, you know, who's calling uh, right. like here. It's pretty, uh, I guess it's streamlined, more streamlined in this one. But yeah, this is the last uh, phone call, I believe, made to Detective Williams. He has Kitty tied up and he's going to kill her. This is the woman who dies with a razor blade with, through the nipple and through the eyes. And 
probably the most famous murder scene in this film. What do you want? To dedicate a killing to you. <laughs> Gonna sacrifice a woman just for you. Like the idea? The only thing I'd like, I'd really like, is to meet you face to face. That'll happen sooner or later, but you'll have to recognize me. In the meantime, allow me to make you this special offering. We're just about there. One minute more. Anything it's somewhere down in the lower west side, fifth sector. Start moving in on the lower west side. Yeah. Thanks. However, you disappoint me, duck. You throw a challenge my way. You don't have the guts to let me get there to watch the goings on. You wait till it's all over. Roger, base. We're on our way. Sitting right near Pier 11. I'll get out the APB. Move, you bastard. Probably should have said, Move, you bastard, to himself. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get to Pier 11. Everybody go to Pier 11. Yeah, and you put all your eggs in one basket, and that's the problem. As soon as you know they get there, obviously, the put it, put I, I don't know how much of it he put through his speaker. I don't know if it was all of it or just when, when that phone call ended, or I'm not sure, but. He must have been watching, you know, from a distance from the apartment with some binoculars or something. Well, yeah, because he gets the time limit. He says the time limit, and I, like that wouldn't it wouldn't make any sense otherwise. And they didn't mm -hmm. have he didn't have really any other technology to use back then to know that. So yeah, yeah, that would have been a pretty elaborate setup for him to go to the payphone. I don't know, like call his house phone. Set up the walkie-talkie, drive home, answer the phone, and then call William. I don't know how the whole sequence worked now, but you'll think about the logistics. He didn't have a partner, did he? Well, he just walked away. He had two walkie-talkies, and he just walked away from the phone booth talking oh, to the walkie-talkie. Right. But he would have to have called the police station, put yeah, the walkie-talkie He dialed the number there, and the and phone booth. Left. And just set the walkie there and just talked into it as he's walking away, I guess. Uh, and sure. <laughs> have one of the more vicious kill scenes in any any slasher giallo movie, period. The, yeah, it was pretty brutal. The razor blades cutting the nipples, the stomach, and the eyes, which is eye mutilation is Fulci's thing. So that that's this mm. is as far as his eye mutilations go, not as good as zombie, but still a pretty good one. The scene was apparently supposed to be worse too, according to production stills mm. and stuff. It was actually supposed to be more violent than it even was. More, more damage to her face maybe than what we saw. But mm. this, I'm sure, is a scene in the UK that is still giving <laughs> them trouble. Yeah. So I'm sure this scene was uh, imitated rather often. I mean, in I'm terms sure. of uh, Jalo films, everyone's trying I'm to not, copy it or I'm one not up sure there. If yeah, I don't know. If, I don't really know if it was. I don't know if it was too much of an influence, really. I just think it was 
it was it was notable for for how for how rough it was for sure i don't know if there's any too many scenes that try to imitate it though that i can think of okay so obviously uh williams is too late especially because he's old and slow (laughs) (laughs) i almost had a heart attack going up them stairs although he could have went there right away he does mention kitty when he's still you know they're listening to the phone call they're doing the trace but you can tell like he doesn't want to bring everyone down to his hooker's apartment. <laughs> yeah, I think after this is when they observe the little girl in the hospital. Well, they, they find the, the uh Skalenda's body. Yeah. Right. That he had killed himself, which do you really think he killed himself? Um well signs point to yes, because I think he I think he may have just known at that point that, I mean, though it does it. So it's after this, that he calls the killer though. Right. He calls the killer, I think on the phone and you see, you know, you see his reflection in the, in the telephone booth or whatever. I don't know if he was trying to get help or I don't know exactly what he was doing because the killer could have killed him, but I don't, I don't think that that's exactly what they imply. I figured it um, was, you know, the Peter trying to throw the cops off his trail. Okay. He's uh it's possible. Oh, dead, it's but... possible. I don't I don't know if I don't know if Peter killed him or or not. Um yeah. Well, you know, with his lifestyle, he could have been killed by anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. Because to me, I don't know if it if it much matters. Like either way, he's he's out of the picture at that point. Um right. and and then yeah, then Faye starts to figure things out. She goes back to the to the original murder scene, finds the knife marks on the wall. She had found the medical bill. And then later is when she listens to the phone call uh, of Peter using the the duck voice. So, mm-hmm. and if she's in the kitchen, she sees the knife. That's uh, yeah. kind of the tips broken from the from that night. So yeah, she goes upstairs, and Peter, you know, he gets the call, and it's her kind of doing the duck voice to him. And he runs upstairs, and she runs him through. I think with her left hand too, as well, didn't she? Yeah, she never. Um... She uh, she she has no hesitation once she finds out mm-hmm. that once she's like a hundred percent sure that he's been the killer, she has no hesitation to stab him, which is cool. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. just another uh, badass woman scene in a movie that's supposedly misogynistic. Well, of course she doesn't finish the job. She, yeah, I was gonna say she should have stabbed him more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, she does stab then, him a second time, like in the heart area, and he falls yeah. down the stairs. So you think, okay. But it's, you know, she she hasn't seen a lot of horror movies, I guess. She doesn't know the killer always comes back. Of course, uh, that's that's when Williams coincidentally shows up and shoots Peter in the face. Shoot first, ask questions later. That's his motto. And I've always said, I've said before that this is one of my favorite headshots in any movie, but it's actually not really a headshot. It's more like it, it just blows cheek his shot. cheek up. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it, which is a good effect, actually. I really, it, it might look a little silly, but I still really like it. More than any other, I think this effect doesn't hold up as well these days. However, I st- I I might like it more than any other effect in this film. Yeah, because it was well, just that's... like whoa, blew up his fucking face. Tolchi has some like dummy effects in his films that don't hold up well, but they still look kind of cool. Yeah, I really like that shot and that scene. So yeah, I didn't mind that it didn't. Uh look as uh i guess realistic as some of the other kills but and then we get our psycho explanation mm-hmm. by dr davis saying that um 
I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says something like Peter knew his daughter was never going to grow up to be a beautiful woman, like the women that he was killing. So, and he, he, he sort of took out his guilt. He substituted his guilt for, with these, with these murders, basically. That was kind of another leap that I didn't know how the character could make <laughs> earlier. I think it's after when they're observing the, uh, the daughter, he's like, that's it. It's because she'll never grow old. And he's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he used to she'll read never... to her using a duck voice. That's, that's... <laughs> and then he became the duck and the duck was a killer. Like she'll never be young and sexual like these women are. What? <laughs> but they could be forgiven. They end on the girl crying, trying to call her dad. Mm-hmm. Pick up the phone, daddy. Don't leave me alone. Talk to me, dad. Which is really sad, but it really not, is. it's not. It's not a happy ending by any means. Right. It's it's a terribly depressing ending. The daughter is almost dead. She's terminal and it's she does not have much time left. She's already lost two limbs, at least. She's only got one arm to call the the house with. Where where's the mother and did they ever say where her mother was? She's out of um, picture. They mentioned something about the parents at one point, right? Not I don't but I don't remember exactly what they say. They mentioned the parents giving money. Or something, but yeah, they never really talk about the mother. I don't, I don't know entirely if they. Yeah, I don't think they certainly don't give a very indefinite explanation if they ever mention her at all. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember it. Um, and then obviously, like Faye is not the mother because she seemed to not know about the daughter at all until towards the end. Yeah, and their relationship doesn't seem to have been uh, very long. They don't seem to be close enough to have had a child together. Right. It's not that you have to be, but. Well, also the kid's like 10 years old, so. Right. Definitely, yeah, not the mother. Brett or Ian, any other notes or uh, things you wanted to point out before we rate this thing? No, not that I, I, not that I, I don't. can think of on, on uh, my part, no. Okay, well. I don't think you can go any more in depth on this than we did. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I've pretty much given uh, given it my all that I could think of. I mean, I, the only thing I had kind of to add a little bit was uh, Sacchetti did a good job in the interview uh, I saw where he talked about his process for, for writing this and writing films in general, but he talked about how he actually doesn't like horror films very much. Mm. And one of the things he tries to do is sort of empathize with the victims and empathize with the audience when he, when he does kill scenes, like he talks about how he, 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 he thought of like different ways to, he thought of like, okay, uh, the 17 year old uh, sneaking into this movie. What is he going to, what is, what is he going to be scared of? What is the, you know, 60 year old woman going to be scared of? And then he talked about how he wanted the killer to use different instruments, be, like different everyday instruments that could also hurt you. Cause he said you could relate to the pain, like a broken bottle uh, cutting you or something, or mm-hmm. what's, what's, what's another example here? Well, the broken bottle was deaf was definitely one of them of like, just like a common thing that you could relate to if you've ever been cut by the light bulbs or something. Broken. Mm-hmm. Same yeah. scene, but it's a different item. Yeah. Or Morales's toes. Or the, 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 yeah, the, the razor blade was another one he talked about. He's like, mm. yeah, you could cut yourself with a yep. little razor blade if you're ever using one. So sure. that was something he talked about. He, um, this, this was kind of, the peak of 
even certainly Fulci's film career, but also the Giallo, like almost both of them went through decline uh, after this in a way like the Giallo, you know, around this time too, the, the year before uh, Dario Argento released Tenebrae. And both of those were kind of the last like really great, well-known Giallo films in a way. The rest of the 80s, there were some brief renaissances, but it wasn't, it was never as big as it was, it was around with these, when those two films were made in Fulci. Sure. Also, Fulci also went through a decline as well. Um, uh, right after this, he broke off from Sacchetti as his writer and uh, his cinematographer, Sergio Salvati, and that attributed to the decline in the quality of his films, as well as his own health problems uh, later in the 80s, too. I guess I could give a, a little refresher to our rating system. We have a five-tiered system. At the tippy top is the ASAP category. Watch this movie as soon as possible. These films are the best of the best, old classics. Uh, so new films, it's it's hard to get an ASAP rating in our show, but it does happen from time to time. Uh, next step down to be soonish. Watch these movies soonish. Just missed the cut. Still great films. Uh, the middle tier is the eventually uh, tier. And uh, these are films we recommend. It's kind of our official stamp of approval. Next step down is the last resort tier. Just It's kind of a mixed bag. Some of them we kind of like, but um, we can't just, you know, we can't, we can't put our name behind it and say, this film is something you need to see. The bottom is the dreaded never category. So I have a feeling that Ian, you might give this one a pretty high rating. <laughs> Well, I'd I'd probably give it a a, a five. You said mm -hmm, five, sure. right? Yep. I, I will. I'll give it that ASAP. That means now. Uh, as far as recommendations go, though, um, I would say see it ASAP if you're a slasher fan and know with what we've talked about what you're getting into. I do think you you might want to know exactly what you're getting into. But this was even before I was a fan of it. This was one of the first movies that got me into Italian horror, period. Mm -hmm. So even before I was a Giallo fan, this was one I loved. And other Giallos, actually, it kind of took me some time to warm up to them just because this one is actually very well paced and the kills are good. Uh, and it's it's fairly, I think, easy enough to follow. There are some there are some there is some convoluted plot threads here and there in terms of the time they spend with certain characters but for the most part it's not too difficult to follow so i would say asap with that caveat of just know what you're getting into sure and on letterbox you'd probably give it five stars yeah okay uh brett what about you i would give it an eventually eventually okay and i i rated it three out of five on letterboxd okay uh, this isn't a, a genre that I have a lot of experience with. The the dubbing always throws me off. I don't know why, but uh, um, this was a fun one. But uh, you know, just didn't eventually for me. But uh, definitely worth watching. Uh, I would give it a soonish. Soonish. I also give it four stars out of five on Letterboxd. I think there's there's some obvious shortcomings with maybe with uh, the, some of the plot threads and whatnot. But I think the uh, the special effects and the mood and some of the director's choices. I, th I think it is, you know, it allows the film to overcome all those deficiencies that it may have, but, and there's some stuff in there that's just pretty iconic. I mean, I haven't seen that many Giallo films, but uh, I know an iconic Giallo film when I see it. 
And it seems like some of the kills have been imitated and not just Giallo, but other films since, especially films in the last 20 years. I feel like I've seen a lot of stuff with razor blades going through eyes and nipples and mutilation of breasts and private parts and whatnot. When they mix the sexuality and the violence, I like it. I'll cut your fucking tits off. (laughs) (laughs) That's a stay tuned for uh, later in our series when we talk about the house that Jack built. You can say, what was the movie where they actually did that? I knew I well, watched that recently. Uh, speaking of which, uh, that interview I saw with uh, Zora, I'm sorry, I forget her last name, Ian. Zora. Zora Karova. Uh, are you going to talk about the cannibal Ferox thing? Sure, yes, yes. Where she's being hung yep. by her breasts, but there's hooks going through her breasts in this film. Yeah, she she died horribly in three different movies. <laughs> in this, uh, cannibal Ferox, and then an anthropophagus, uh, another uh sort of cannibal killer movie from the early 80s um she does not have the worst death in that movie but she does she does still have a bad Mm. one the worst death in that movie is when uh george eastman rips a fetus out of a woman's body and then eats it wow (laughs) george eastman obviously from stage fright the writer of stage fright and the man behind the mask and all the important scenes at least yeah he actually he had a couple of different uh, movies in the early 80s where he played uh, a killer um absurd was the f- or no actually I, th- I can't remember i think i think anthropophagus was the first one where he played like a cannibalistic killer and then in the in the sequ- sort of sequel to it absurd which is basically a halloween ripoff where he plays like a michael myers type mm. uh he was a guy who had uh experiments put on him by the church and uh he's able to regenerate almost like wolverine and uh, Edmund Purdom, who played the Dean in Pieces, plays the priest that's going after him. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for schooling us on Fulci and the New York Ripper. Let's hear your plugs. What have you been doing? So I am on uh, Land of the Creeps every uh, every two weeks for the double-double episodes uh, where we where I'm on the Black Glove Mystery segment. Uh always talking giallo sometimes talking just italian genre cinema movies uh cinema movies in in general when we do bonus episodes on certain movies recently released was uh, the dvd infatuation podcast i was on uh with dave dr shock becker where we talked about our top 10 euro crime films okay dr shock up from land of the creeps right yeah dr dusty (laughs) dr dusty (laughs) so dr shock he has his own podcast i didn't know this aside from land of the creeps yeah, it's part of the um, it's it's part of the considering the cinema podcast. Uh, he has a he has his own show off of that, which is called the DVD Infatuation Podcast, which is the same name of his website. So, okay, very cool. I didn't know that. I've become a recent listener to Land of the Creeps and uh, liked everything I've heard so far. And especially if uh, you're listening to this right now, the horror episode. They do horror all year long. Very in-depth, long-form episodes, which are my favorite type of uh, podcasts. A lot of great content from them. And you get to hear Ian Urza talk Italian giallo films and genre films on that show. So be sure to check them out. Anything else? In terms of uh, plugs, not necessarily. Yeah. I'm going to be on 
Uh, I am going to be, so in November, I'll be on a podcast called, the, it's supposed to release in November. I'll be on the uh, No Bodies podcast, talking heavy metal horror movies on there. Okay. You want to plug your Twitter or Letterboxd? Or oh, sure. Like yeah. Oh, yeah. And your blog, you have a blog still, right? Yeah. Uh, I have a blog website at the good, the bad, and the macabre.blogspot.com. Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Erzonomics. And you can find me just by searching my name, Ian Urza, on Letterboxd. Okay. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. The show's Twitter is watch this underscore movie. Uh, Brett can be found at Positively Wolf One, which is also his letterbox profile. Mine is under Eric underscore Mulder. You can email us at watch this movie at yahoo.com. Please rate and review, subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and many other podcast apps. We will check you later. Check you later. Bye. Wait, man, why are you always such a dork, man? What are you talking about? Check you later. Check you later. (laughs) Hey, man, you're off my case. Yeah, want to get some exercise? Oh, my balls.